Cocoa Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you are serious about your podcast hosting needs, you should check out Cyber Ears. Whether you are a podcaster, a radio host, a musician, a narrator, an audiobook author, or simply a school, church, corporation, or anyone else with an audio recording that needs to be hosted or distributed, you should check out CyberEars.com. Unlimited bandwidth, fast, reliable, and rugged servers with no hidden fees. CyberEars, your audio, your terms. Listen, it's getting closer. Hey, you got your Coco 3 yet? A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Okay, welcome back. We are here, uh, episode number 11 of the Coco Crew. This is, uh, you know, our last episode of our first year. Uh, I am John Linville. And Neil Blanchard. And we're here with Neil Blanchard, and we are the Coco Crew. And uh, we hope you're going to enjoy this one last uh, somewhat hurried episode we're trying to tuck in before Cocoa Fest. And uh, hopefully we'll see all of you there and you can tell us whether you liked it or not. What do you think? That sounds like a good idea right now. Sounds great. This is the mark <laughs> of our new year. That's right. It's it's like New Year's. It's, uh, um, it, it, well, it's really that. It's a new year for us. As our, like I said, we started counting from zero, uh, like good C programmers, and this is our twelfth episode, calling it number eleven. That marks a year since last Cocoa Fest. Hopefully, we have inspired a boatload of you to make your way to Lombard, Illinois, to join us for our New Year's celebration known as Cocoa Fest. I'm looking forward to it. I know Neil is. He can barely contain himself. He's uh, zipping around, uh, looking uh, to buy every uh, Tim Hortons donut he can find because that's what the Canadians do. (laughs) Um, I heard him uh, drinking his Tim Hortons coffee in a mug that when he set it down, sounded like somebody had set off a bass drum. So he's probably bouncing around the house there. Are uh, Are you excited, Neil? Oh, I'm definitely excited. I'm trying to wrap up this project here, get everything all ready. It's a lot of crunch time now, for real. Yeah, well, Cocoa Fest is almost here. Um, it's right about, uh, well, in, in, in two weeks, uh, Neil and I will be on our way to Cocoa Fest, probably uh, stopping somewhere in the Ohio area to visit uh, a, uh, a barcade. <laughs> By the time you hear this, it may be even sooner than that. Now, well, I'm sure it will be, maybe a week or less by the time you hear this. I know it's gotten to be busy around here. I'm uh, applying labels to uh, cocoa cartridges and boxes. Um, Neil, I know uh, you've been kind of busy. Do you want to tell people what you're working on? 
I am working on the, uh, well, it's actually your design, Sega Genesis Joypad Adapter for the Color Computer 3. So yeah. I'm, uh, soldering all the components on the boards, uh, soldering DINs, learning how to solder DINs uh, efficiently. That's <laughs> a task. Very cool. Yeah, I hope people are going to enjoy those adapters. Um, like I said, you don't have to use the Sega. You can use the Atari 2600. Um, if you do use one of the Sega adapters uh, with a Coco 3, you, you'll uh, get the benefit of the second button. And uh, if you're using a Genesis adapter or a Genesis joypad with the adapter and uh, future software that uh, isn't quite developed yet, hopefully we'll have some games that can make use of the extra buttons on the Genesis pad. Uh, so that should be interesting. So you'd have ABC and start there. How cool would it be to have a game when you can just push start on the controller and it starts automatically? That would be pretty cool. Almost like Farfall. Oh, wait, that's different. (laughs) (laughs) Any other projects underway? I don't know. That's probably enough to keep us busy. I have toyed with a few other projects. I'm probably just going to keep those uh, a little bit under wraps for later blog posts and that sort of thing. Mostly it's just uh, packaging up uh, uh, cocoa cartridges and uh, maybe try to collect a few extra uh, odds and ends uh, to take to Cocoa Fest uh, for people who aren't as fortunate in their collections <laughs> as I am. Uh, I don't know if I'll manage that or not because it's, like you say, busy, busy. Uh, how about uh, eBay or any other acquisitions uh, your way? Neil, did you get anything this month? No, eBay. I've been staying off eBay, uh, not not for any reason in particular, just because of time. No time for eBay. <laughs> Those not, poor, not this month. Those poor guys, they're not going to be able to eat. They're not getting enough food, enough, enough cash coming in from <laughs> from you to help them. Uh, I picked up uh, a couple of things, you know, inspired by our infamous printer episode. <laughs> Actually, well, I, I came across, um, you know, one of the things I said, if I was going to get a printer, need to, it would probably have to be something a little unusual, maybe more like a plotter. Right. And so we came across, I don't know if you've uh, ever seen the FP215, uh, the big flatbed plotter that was available back in the day for the TRS 80s. Um, it's this big, huge beast of a, a machine, heavy, but it's good, you know, it's got like a, you know, a gantry with the an X and Y positioning for a pin. <laughs> And uh, so that came available, and they come available from time to time. Um, the problem is, of course, you can't get the original pins, but this one, the seller said that he had created an adapter so that you could mount a a, a modern like ballpoint or some sort of pin like that in place of the pins that were the original Radio Shack ones. And not only did he include one that's been 3D printed, he also includes the design files. So <laughs> I haven't quite had a chance to make that work yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to playing with that. That is that's cool. So you can still uh, refill it with today's. Uh... That's right. You can still put in new stuff. You know, one other thing that kind of along those lines, uh, I, I picked up a a receipt printer, and this is kind of you see the printers uh, that are there at your point of sale. Uh, terminals, you know, when you go and buy something. Well, if you ever notice, but a lot of those actually have um, serial port interfaces on them. And so it occurred to me, uh, they're, you know, they're thermal paper, not unlike the old TP10 printer that was available paired with the MC10 or also worked with the Coco. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, obviously you can still get paper for those. <laughs> it might make a nice attachment. Um 
for a cocoa or, or MC10, and I found one of those at a decent price and and uh, got it in and have played with it a little bit. Um, doesn't quite work with the cocoa or the MC10 out of the box, but with a little fiddling, you can make that work. Um, that's probably going to be a blog post in the future. Um, don't really have time uh, for it. <laughs> you were working on some software, weren't you, for that? Yeah. So the, you need to, um, well, you need to to do a poke to get the uh, the 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 uh, cocoa or the MC10 into the the right uh, serial port speed because it won't go down as low as what the uh, the cocoa expects. Um, and then uh, it, the um, the printer expects line feeds at the, at the end of the lines, whereas the cocoa sends carriage returns. Um, all of this stuff's pretty easy to fix, but there's a little bit of detail to be had there. So, uh, like I said, I'm going to save that for a blog post, but it's something cool. <laughs> I like any uh, any type of way you can get a new printer working on a Cocoa. It sounds good to me. Yeah, well, it's kind of cool. You know, you, it also seems like, you know, like I say, you can get the paper. I mean, you, can, you can't even buy it in small chunks. You buy it in <laughs> kind of big amounts of the paper because they're designed for, you know, uh, retail stores to fill their receipt printers. Um, but it prints quiet and nice and legible, uh, at least until the receipt, until the paper decides to turn black or whatever it's going to do eventually. <laughs> but, and it's, it's just a good size, you know, I mean, it's, it's a you small know, footprint it's, on those things, eh? It is small, but, you know, it, it depends on what you want to do with it. Uh, for example, one thing we had talked about doing was actually turning it into a little point-of-sale <laughs> application to use at Cocoa Fest, which I don't think I'm going to get to for this year, but maybe next year. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I have one more item I'd like to talk about that I got on eBay this year. I posted a picture of this on uh on the Facebook group, or this month, I should say. <laughs> and I don't think I'd ever really, uh, maybe I'd seen these before, but I wasn't aware of them. Uh, this is the TRS-80 Modem Phone 100. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are not familiar with this, this delightful beast of the past, this was actually a, basically, I think it's designed as a wall mount phone. Maybe it's a desk phone. But so a traditional phone for like the regular plug into the wall telephone system. Um, but it also included a 300 baud modem built into the phone. So it's a, the phone's got a DB25 serial port on it and it can double as a modem, but not just any modem. No, no, this is not an ATDT phone number kind of modem. This is a dial the phone with your finger <laughs> wait till you hear the devil screech and then you press originate or where <laughs> you pick up the phone and press answer <laughs> so uh -oh. so this is a manual connection modem <laughs> built into a a plain old telephone system style of phone <laughs> and i couldn't help myself it's just too awesome. <laughs> I, I think I would have as well. I've I got to be honest. I've never seen that in my life until you, uh, you won that auction. That's pretty cool. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Yeah. Now here's the question: Are you going to mount that thing in your kitchen? Probably not in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> I might find an excuse to mount it in the office playground, whatever this room is called. Um, <laughs> But I don't know. We'll see. But like I said, I just could not resist no, something so that's, delightfully retro. That's awesome. Um, 
<laughs> and it was a good example of it too. I mean, that was complete in the box, was it not? Oh my God, it was brand new. It was it was still wrapped in plastic. It still is wrapped in the plastic in the box. You well, know, they wrap them in individual little bags and tape them shut inside the box. They're still there. I haven't pulled it out. <laughs> I may. I mean, I'm not a keep it in plastic kind of guy, but so far I haven't. So we'll see. Maybe when I build the new retro wing on the house, uh, <laughs> that'll be the foundation stone. Uh, well, anyway, thinking about that is probably enough of a of an introduction on the podcast. So um, we'll leave you with that thought for just a moment. Uh, maybe hear from our sponsors, and uh, we'll be back with some announcements. Okay, so you ready to move on? I'm ready. <clears throat> announcements. Okay, all right. Now there are the announcements. So we are the Coco Crew. We are available on Twitter as uh, at Coco Crew Podcast. Uh, you'll see a lot of uh, back and forth between the Coco Crew Podcast and, and me <laughs> for some reason. Although we've started to have a little bit of repartee with the Trash Talk guys on Twitter. So that's kind of fun. Um, nice to have, uh, some allies, uh, out there. Anyway, moving on, uh, we do have a Facebook page. So if you look on Facebook for, uh, again, the Coco crew podcast, we have a public group. we get a little bit of back and forth there. Uh, happy to hear people talk about the podcast or about any kind of Coco related stuff there, including the MC 10, the dragon, any of the Brazilian clones. Um, it's all welcome. It's all welcome. Uh, even occasional random retro stuff from uh, from other systems, uh, as long as you know we know which one's the best. <laughs> um, we are available through iTunes. Although, as of the date of this recording, the iTunes feed seems to be an episode behind. I'm not really sure what's causing that. So, uh, f- honestly, I recommend that you use the feed at uh, CocoCrew.org um, directly if you have. Uh, suitable podcast uh, catching software. But if you are using iTunes, we are available through iTunes, and hopefully that feed will get resolved uh, post-haste. <laughs> we are also available for streaming through Stitcher. Stitcher does show the la- the latest episode, so I don't think there's anything wrong with the feed. Google Play Music uh, is showing uh, the, our podcast there. Uh, I'm not really sure. I don't use Google Play for downloading podcasts. If anyone does, um, I'd love to hear your experience with it. But uh, the link for our podcast is there, and that one also is showing uh, through Episode 10. So, again, I'm not sure what the problem is with iTunes. But (laughs) We are listed on the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. This is a collection of technology oriented uh retro oriented uh podcasts uh talking about old arcade games and old game systems from the past and old computers and uh, i think the newest thing on there is um maybe the playstation um uh, if you're looking for other technology retro themed podcasts uh, that's a good place to go and look oh and i missed the fact i missed the that we are on the, the throwback network which is also a, a different list of retro themed podcasts. Those are, while there are plenty of technology themed podcasts on the Throwback Network, there are also other retro themed podcasts uh, talking about old TV shows, um, the 80s in general, Boys R Us. So, <laughs> a variety of podcasts available on the Throwback Network. Uh, so, again, if you're looking for another podcast to, to 
fill your time, your spare time when you're not listening to us, feel free to check them out. Uh, finally, of course, uh, as mentioned in the show intro, we are hosted by Cyber Ears. Uh, if you are looking for some place to host your own audio, whether it be your own podcast or some other form of audio recordings, then you should check out Cyber Ear, where you get your audio on your terms. If you do want to reach, reach us uh, for feedback, and I hope you do, uh, you can send us email. Uh, obviously, you can send us feedback through Twitter or Facebook or whatever else, but amongst others, you can send us email uh, to show at cococrew.org podcast at cococrew.org or feedback at cococrew.org all of those addresses will get to both me and neil if for some reason you only want to reach one or the other of us you can reach us uh, you can reach me as john at cococrew.org that's j-o-h-n and you can reach neil as neil n-e-i-l at cococrew.org those are our standard announcements and now at this point uh, i would like to cover uh, some upcoming events Recently passed uh, was uh, Vintage Computing Festival Southeast 4.0 in Roswell, Georgia. I was there for a part of the first day, uh, just casual driving through. I, my dad lives in Georgia, so I took my son down and visited Grandpa and uh, spent uh, part of the, the Saturday in Roswell visiting the uh, old computer guys. Saw our friend Randy Kendig there and uh, a few other folks. They have a nice little museum down there with a bunch of Apple stuff and some other retro computing themed items now. Uh, lots of interesting uh, pieces of old technology, uh, including Apple Ones and S100 based machines. And Was there an original Apple One there? Oh, yeah, there actually were two, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. But, uh, they have Apple Ones and other Apples. They had a Pippin, if you're in gaming. Uh, they had an <laughs> S100, uh, like an MC uh, S100 machine. They had, like I said, a lot of old example examples of old hardware there. Oh, they had Roy Justice's uh, uh, Mark 8 replica. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was his, uh, the one that he built. Uh, did you have you ever met Roy Justice, Neil? No, I've I've always wanted to, and I think uh, when I first started going to the fest, that's the year he stopped going. Yeah, he stopped. He had some family illness that uh, he needed to be available at home, and and uh, he hasn't come back. I hope he'll make it back one day. He doesn't live that far from me, but far enough that I can't just drop in on him. So, <laughs> so anyway, and Roy, uh, and Roy was the guy behind the uh, first VGA adapter for the Coco 3. That's right. That's right. Uh, and I think it's still not a bad one, although, you know, it does, it does lack some of the extra fancy stuff like, uh, uh, the raster emulation or, or whatever, uh, with the black bars, <laughs> the scan lines uh, or whatever. Moving on from, uh, from there, um, by the time you hear this, uh, the boys in Brazil will have had their equivalent to, to Coco Fest. Um, um, Hopefully that will have had a good time down there uh, the weekend of uh, April 9th and 10th. Probably about the time you hear this, uh, if you're anywhere in the northeast near Wall, New Jersey, you may still be able to make it out to the Vintage Computer Festival East 11. That's XI. <laughs> they used to use... Uh, uh, Arabic numerals. Now they've switched to Roman numerals. Uh, not sure why, but you know, that's what they did. <laughs> that's on April 15th through 17th. That's Friday through Sunday. 
Uh, their events are a little interesting on the Fridays. They have uh, in-depth kind of technical oriented classes on a variety of topics. Some of which are electronics, some of which are, you know, how to apply retrobrite to make your cases look clean or that sort of thing. I don't know exactly what they're doing this year, but should be a good show. Um, they, of course, on the weekends, they concentrate on a combination of, uh, some sort of broader interest, historical talks, and, of course, a show floor where you can see some of the old computers in action. Uh, so, anyway, if you're in the northeast part of the United States, you may want to make it out there to Wall, New Jersey, April 15th through 17th. Of course, the big event, uh, hopefully uh, you're not tired of hearing us talk about uh, Cocoa Fest, because if you're tired of it, we have failed. <laughs> but our big uh, event for our year, the 25th annual last Chicago Cocoa Fest, coming up April 23rd and 24th. Uh, of 2016 in Lombard, Illinois. You know, I don't know what else to say that hasn't been said. This is our big event. This is our big gathering for Cocoa folks. I really hope uh, if you've been listening to the podcast at all, you know what I'm talking about, and I really hope you've already made plans, and and, uh, maybe by the time you hear this, you'll already be on your way. (laughs) What do you think, Neil? Exciting stuff? It's definitely exciting, and uh, just when you think it's great, it just keeps getting even better, and you hear all these uh, people that are showing up at this, uh, this one. I think the 25th anniversary has something to do with it as well. I think the 25th anniversary uh, has some people wanting to come. I think, I think there's uh, a couple of guys that have been out beating the bushes for the past year, trying to get everybody who might be interested to come out. Uh, I'm not, not sure who those guys are, but I'm, I'm sure glad they're out there beating the bushes for the event. <laughs> um, I'm hoping it's going to be a lot of people there. I'm going to blow the doors off the place. If nothing else, hopefully we'll have – uh, a couple of new people and uh, and uh, some old timers who haven't been coming for a while. That would be good enough for me. But uh, I don't want to downplay it uh, here at the end. I hope we get through. Uh, like I say, I hope we have 150 people. <laughs> but we'll see. Um, maybe it'll only be 60. But <laughs> um, anyway, show up one way or another. Don't make us come out and get you. Yeah, it's not too late <laughs> if you haven't booked a room. That's right. Okay, so I've got uh, a new one I want to uh, announce here. I've never been to this event, um, and I don't know it's, it's 100% to overlap on uh, the kind of person that would normally listen to this podcast, but I suspect there'll be some. Uh, this event is called the Southern Fried Game Room Expo, and it is uh, scheduled for June 10th through 12th in Atlanta, Georgia. And this event has... Um, they're going to have a, a, a collection of old arcade games, uh, uh, game consoles. Looks like they include tabletop gaming. There'll be speakers. It looks like a cool event. Uh, it, I'm, it does. But, you posted the link a few times, and I've checked it out. <clears throat> it's definitely up my alley. Yeah, so I, I think I'm probably going to try to go to this one. I haven't made firm plans yet, but it looks like a cool event. There is going to be, obviously, a link in the show notes. Uh, I hope if that sounds like something that might be interesting to you, especially if you're in the southeastern part of the United States, uh, uh, in or around Atlanta, then I, I hope you'll check it out. Okay, here's an event that uh, I, I think will be interesting to some of our listeners. Uh, it's tempting to to, uh, to be hostile to this event since, you know, they're using the wrong computer. <laughs> but I think we're, we're well past that kind of rivalry these days. It is a cool event. I went to the uh, event uh, 
uh, I guess it was last year I went, right? Yeah, this is called Kansas Fest. Kansas Fest is an Apple II oriented event held at um, uh, Rockhurst University in Kansas City, Missouri. And it is essentially a summer camp for Apple II enthusiasts. Uh, it runs from July 19th through the 24th. So that's uh, something like a Tuesday through a Sunday, something like that. And it will have uh, a lot of, well, it starts off with a big Apple giveaway, which typically includes uh, not just Apple computers, but uh, uh, other various uh, detritus <laughs> of other retro computers and such. But then it goes on from there uh, with a number of talks, very good talks last year, some more technical than others, kind of a broad range, so very enjoyable for a lot of people. An opportunity to spend a lot of time with some like-minded folks. Um, they're pretty friendly. Uh, they you know, obviously they'll rib you a bit about uh, liking the the different computers. So uh, hopefully, no worse than what I've done to them here. <laughs> anyway, it's a good event. Uh, I recommend it if you uh, if the idea of going and spending uh, several days at a summer camp with uh, a bunch of old geeks uh, sounds like fun to you. Then I, I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs> uh, what do you think, Neil? I'd be tempted to go. I remember last year I wanted to go, but uh, I was in Vegas at the exact same time of the uh, the event. Well, that's right. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to make it this year, um, but I, I'd like to think that I will make it back at some point, maybe next year. Like I said, it's a pretty cool event, a lot of cool technical talks, uh, a lot of cool retro computing talks. Um, there's sometimes some interesting retro personalities shows up. They've had... Uh, Steve Wozniak has shown up there in the past. Um, cool. John John Romero has showed up there in the past. Uh, wow. That's one of the guys behind the the Doom game from back in the nineties. Uh, he was also an Apple II programmer before that. Anyway, pretty cool event. Uh, it's the kind of thing that might appeal to you. You probably better sign up because they do fill up. They actually stay in the dorms there at Rockhurst University. They eat meals in the student cafeteria. Uh, it's like, uh, like I say, it's like going to summer camp. <laughs> cool, cool stuff. Or going back to college, university. Yeah, yeah. Okay, our last event that we're going to talk about this time is um, it's uh, the Vintage Computer Festival Midwest number eleven. That is scheduled for September tenth and eleventh in twenty sixteen in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Um, this is a, another a VCF event. Uh, it's lots of uh, a variety of old computers will be there. I think this event tends to have a, a higher concentration of Commodore stuff, um, but it's a good group of guys. And the, uh, the most of the people that are involved in the event, a lot of them show up for Cocoa Fest because it's uh, a nearby location. And um, it's a good, bu good bunch of guys. <laughs> and, uh, um, I think Neil went to this event last year. I did, and, and you enjoyed that. Yeah, it was excellent. And they're uh, they're also doing the auction style, just like Coco Fest. Now they did yeah, that first, first time last year. So they they picked up the the idea. I think they will admit that they got the idea from Coco Fest on That's doing the auctions. <laughs> which is one of the best parts of going to Coco Fest is the no minimum bid auction. And so uh, it's an, another opportunity in the Midwest for some retro computing uh, goodness. And uh, I recommend if you're interested in such things that you take advantage of it. All right. Well, that probably covers our 
uh, announcements and new events. We're going to take another little break here and be back with some news. This commercial is going out to you, Boise. Un ordinateur couleur, quelle personnalité Le Coco 2 de Radio Sac. On solde pour Noël à partir de 149,95. And now we're back with some news. So, Neil, once again, uh, we have what I consider to be an almost ridiculously long <laughs> news segment. Um, are you amazed that there's always so much news to talk about on this old machine? There's a lot of news. And, I mean, this, <laughs> this is actually less than a month. Yeah, it is. It's, what, three weeks or something uh, this time since we're trying to fit in another episode. But I like it, uh, though. It's, it's nice to see that this machine is still going. It is cool that there's so much stuff. Um, like I said, I don't know how much of it is uh, you you find what you go looking for, uh, how much of it is that providing a, a bit of an outlet. Uh, people are a little more uh, open about telling, when, telling uh, what's going on, what projects they're doing, that sort of thing. I don't know. One way or another, though, uh, projects always seem to heat up a little bit before Cocoa Fest. Um, maybe that's why there's more news. It's good to have one way or another, that's for sure. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the first one. The first one actually comes from me. I had this TB10 printer that uh, has kind of been laying around for a while. And then since I had been playing with the, uh, the MC10 computer a bit, which is sort of associated with the TP10, although the TP10 works well with the Cocoa uh, too, but uh, people tend to pair them in mind. I think they were sort of designed to go together, uh, certainly in similar form factor. I anyway, playing with the, T the MC10 got me thinking about the TP10, and so I decided to kind of give it a try and uh, play around with it, and I did have a roll of paper, and so that was okay, but uh, I remembered that people have discussed it as they've had some difficulties finding paper for uh, the TP10. And uh, so I decided to kind of take a look, see what I could find, because I didn't really want to have to go out and buy uh, papers, uh, uh, rolls of fax paper, and then cut them in half with a bandsaw. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I got to looking around, and uh, turns out that there is this poll, this, there was this printer, um, the A6 print pocket printer is what it's called. Um, that uh, I don't know if you probably still can buy them, although they're probably old stock at this point. I don't think they're still in production. I could be wrong. Um, but there was a printer that uses the same width of paper. I think the rolls may be smaller overall, but it's the same width and therefore will feed into the TP10. And you can buy this paper off the shelf at Amazon right now. <laughs> and so I thought, well, that's, I got to try and check this out. Uh, this, um, I guess it's Cypix is uh, the, the brand name there. Um, anyway, there'll be a link in the show notes. You can see my picture. It's got a picture of the box. Uh, you go looking for stuff on Amazon. You can find this paper and uh, you can buy brand new paper that'll fit your TB10. Uh, nice and white paper <laughs> so you don't have the yellowed uh, old stock uh, TP10 stuff just uh, is not your only option and you don't have to cut 
uh, faxed paper rolls in half anymore. You can just uh, buy this brand new paper. So I thought that was pretty cool. So, uh, posted a picture of it on the Facebook group and uh, include the news here. So do you have a TP10, Neil? No, but I'm uh, eyeing one up, actually. Uh, there's this one on eBay I've been looking at. Yeah. I think I might make a move on it, especially now. Yeah, well, now you know you can get paper for it. The well, great thing about the TP10, which is it shares in common with that uh, receipt printer I was talking about before, since it's a thermal paper or a thermal printer, you don't have to worry about finding uh, ink uh, or uh, or ribbons uh, for it. No ink, no ribbons, no toner, uh, just uh, the the thermal paper. Very cool stuff. All right, well, moving on. Um, so I, often the, the Dragon uh, 3264 uh, Facebook group started catching wind of this new project that's out there uh, coming uh, from, well, it's a guy named, and I know I'm going to mess up this name, but Baz Gelopsis or Gelopsis. I suspect that that is, I'm not even sure, it may be a Greek name. I know I don't know the right way to pronounce it. So, Baz, uh, <laughs> if you're listening, feel free to send us an email and maybe give me a hint as how I should be pronouncing it. Or, you know, you could even send an audio feedback to us. That would be most welcome. Uh, anyway, he's uh, he, doing his hobbies under the, uh, he's doing this work under what he calls Beta Gamma Computing. Seems to have... Uh, a variety of, of retro computing projects under that moniker. But this in particular is about the Draco 64. And so as we've mentioned here, the the Dragon uh, computers was very similar to the Tandy color computer. The biggest difference being the, the wiring of the keyboard. Uh, and then uh, the Dragon has a different serial port and a different parallel port or, or has a parallel port. Uh, whereas the Coco has the Bitbanger serial port, uh, that sort of thing. But they're very similar machines. And so Baz has figured out a way to, uh, I guess he's adding a little circuitry to, uh, I guess it's to the Dragons. But yeah, he said he had, he had to, he has to convert a Dragon to it. But basically he's converting a Dragon to a Coco in a way that's switchable. So you can still boot up as a dragon or you can switch, flip a switch and boot up as a cocoa all in one box. And then he's even um, created a, a new badge. So it's got the dragon logo and then Draco 64, then with a Tandy color computer logo on it. I mean, it looks great. It looks professional. It looks like it just rolled off the line somewhere. Um, I would like one. Sounds like we don't have the logistics in place to get them here in the United States. Um, I'm not quite so committed as to figure out how to get uh, <laughs> a Dragon 32 over to him uh, wherever he's at, but uh, it looks really cool. If you're in, in Europe uh, or otherwise uh, in a position to send uh, Baz your Dragon, I highly recommend it. It looks like a cool project. Um, did you take a look at this, Neil? No, I haven't. Uh, actually, I definitely take a look at it, though. It yeah, it's pretty cool. Very cool stuff. Baz, good work. Um, and uh, I hope a lot of people beat a path to your door. <laughs> All right. So, obviously, we've mentioned Steve Strobridge or the original gamer Stevie Stro on this uh, podcast uh, a few times. I know he does us the favor of mentioning us on his uh, broadcast related to the Coco. Anyway, uh, he has uh, taken to doing some some live marathon uh, sessions on the on the weekends mostly i guess 
uh, and he'll let people know that he's going to do them, and then people will uh, join in with him via Skype or uh, through the, uh, you can watch through the streaming services uh, available through YouTube. And he'll just play a bunch of games, and the people that call in will make suggestions, or they'll say, well, these games have this in common, or uh, have you looked at all the games that use, uh, you know, a uh, uh, graphics mode or something like that. And so he's got a few of these up. Uh, I participated in one. Uh, looks like Curtis Boyle's been participating in a lot of them, and uh, uh, Nick Morantis as well. So if that's the kind of watching some old guys uh, play Coco games, <laughs> sounds like a fun afternoon on a Saturday for you. I definitely think you should check it out. That's great. Steve's doing these videos as well because it shows people uh, different games on the Coco. Yeah. They might not have been aware of it. They might not even know what a Coco is, you know, and they can might bring people into the community. Definitely. So, okay. So the next uh, news items, uh, the link is a posting on Facebook from uh, Jason... Lee Steer. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that quite right, but uh, Jason, I take it is in the UK. And sometimes, you know, we're divided by a common language. <laughs> so uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing at least his first name correctly. Anyway, he um, posted uh, some uh, signal traces from an oscilloscope um, where he's looking to uh, create, uh, capture some composite video output on a PAL Coco 2. He's uh, trying to consult with Ed Snyder on some of that. Um, there's not a lot of news here, uh, but I thought it was kind of neat that uh, they were working together and showing some signals and discussing that. And, uh, oh, you know what? He's not English. He's Australian. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Sorry about that, Jason. <laughs> I do know there's a difference. I just didn't know that was what the difference was. It's all in the Commonwealth. What do you know? <laughs> Um, like I said, not a lot of news here. It's uh, just kind of cool that uh, people are working together, looking to solve uh, some video uh, issues on uh, PAL machines. Uh, if that's the kind of thing that sounds interesting to you, you may want to check out the link in the show notes and uh, see what's going on. Uh, I will say that the PAL uh, video conversion circuit is in the Coco is kind of neat because you're still using the 6847 video display generator which is fundamentally an NTSC video chip. <laughs> so you basically, you have to have a circuit that is timed correctly to essentially turn, stop the 6847, to stop time for the 6847 for a certain number of, of uh, well, for a certain length of time and, and generates signals as if it was still generating lines. And then when you get to the right point, you then, you know, let the 6847 run again, <laughs> which is crazy. Right? <laughs> you would never do that these days. I think uh, you would insist on having the proper style of uh, a chip. Of course, now the video is all done differently anyway. But um, anyway, it's a pretty neat topic. So if it sounds interesting to you, go check it out. And that board, that's a separate board altogether, right? No, I think it's actually, looking at the pictures, I think it's actually on the Coco motherboard. They just have a, a different version of the motherboard. Oh, see, I always thought the PAL Cocos had a uh, separate board underneath, or maybe that's the Color Computer 3. Yeah, I think the PAL Coco 3 has a separate board. Not 100% sure, but I think that that one actually is more like what you're thinking. But yeah. the PAL motherboards that I've seen 
seem to be different motherboards, even though they kind of number them the same as as the NTSC motherboards. Uh, so I don't know how they kept them straight. But <laughs> uh, so moving on. Uh, so there's a link here. Uh, actually, it's a, a mailing list thread that was about IDE interfaces for the Coco. Uh, which was, in this case, I don't think was the most interesting part of the discussion. But so the discussion kind of turned, actually referenced something that had been in a in a Facebook uh, posting, and the, the discussion was about whether or not you need gold plated connectors when you're interfacing with the Coco. And of course, there's um, you know, the the default, you know, the default correct, you know, pre-approved answer is yes. Of course, you need gold uh, connectors because they're the best, right? It's a nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Nobody ever got fired for putting gold on your uh, PCB card edge connectors, right? <laughs> but um, you know, not everyone put it on there because it does cost extra uh, if you're building the connectors. Um, if you're building the the PCBs, it costs extra to to put the gold plating on, and uh, it's not clear to everyone, including me, that it, that it's a necessary expense. When even if you do get some buildup, or, or you can usually just clear it off with an eraser or a little alcohol or whatever, right? So fine. Well, but then the the suggestion was um, that um, back in the day that Tandy had been. Uh, sort of warned off from using a gold-plated edge connector on the cocoa because uh, you could actually get corrosion between. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. The the, the connector on the cocoa is not gold-plated, um, but so the if you use gold-plated PCBs, you could theoretically get corrosion because when you put unlike metals together uh, with the yeah, I'm not much of a chemist here, but when you put unlike metals together uh, in contact with it, I guess with a dielectric, which could be the air, um, uh, you can get corrosion. And so you could actually damage, theoretically, you could damage the connector on the cocoa by plugging in gold-plated connectors. Now, that generated a lot of harumphs. And <laughs> um, that, that was quite um, the discussion. It was pretty interesting. It, it was an interesting discussion. Um uh, I know I dug out a couple of papers that I found on the topic that weren't too deep. Well, they were deep enough to, to lose me somewhat on the chemistry, but uh, they weren't, you know, unfathomable. I think still the the uh, the, uh, the overall consensus was that gold connectors were good. Um, I, and like I say, I don't think it really changed any minds about how necessary it is, <laughs> but, uh, either you still think they're good and necessary or you think they're good, but not necessary. Um, but there is some evidence, uh, in some situations that you will get a certain amount of corrosion, uh, just as chemistry predicts, <laughs> right? It's just a matter of how much is too much and, uh, how much of it is naturally wiped off by the friction of inserting a cartridge into a card edge connect. Anyway, if you weren't part of the discussion, maybe you'd be interested. You could go check it out, see what the uh, highbrow intellectual con uh, discussions happen on the uh, Coco mailing list. Okay, definitely an interesting read. And uh, also to add in here real quick is out of all the Tandy disc controllers, only one of them used gold plated connectors. Uh, and that was the Tandy FD 501. I didn't even, realize that. Even the last one, the 502, went back to 10. Well, that's cool. Or interesting or whatever. Or maybe it sucks. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. 
made them change at the, the the last revision. That's hard to say. I mean, maybe that could be a factor, or maybe price, or who knows. Yeah. Well, like I say, well, it makes you wonder. I mean, so like a floppy controller, you expect to to be plugged in a lot. You're not normally going to unplug that at the end of the day. You're going to leave it plugged in. Uh, so if you're going to have any corrosion, uh, a connector that's going to stay plugged in longer is going to tend to have more of it, right? That's right. I think that makes sense. So I don't know. Maybe that was influenced uh, or maybe that was part of the thinking for why they moved away from the gold. Uh, I don't know if they had any actual uh, empirical evidence of that or uh, if they just were convinced by someone else uh, to do it that way or, or what. I don't know. Or maybe they just wanted to save 10 cents on a connector. <laughs> okay. Well, moving on uh, another link. That's not entirely a news item, but um, so yeah, a posting from Paul Thayer to the color computer Facebook group it says any Cocoa three basic programmers out there dealing with graphics. Do you suffer from an immense amount of H draw H buff and H kick commands that take up valuable programming space, run out of memory space for your graphics. I have solutions for you. Contact me if you're interested. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think the, I don't know if the contact me part was overly well received. A couple of people seemed to raise an eyebrow at that. But I think the, the, the discussion that ensued kind of was suggested that maybe Paul should uh, to blog about whatever it is he's talking about there. He's, he posted a... Uh, uh, what well, looks like a logo for a blog, but I don't think he ever got to the blog posting. So, Paul, if you're out there, I'd love to see your blog posting. Uh, let's see what you're doing with the super extended color basic um, and uh, what kind of tips and tricks you have uh, for expanding the power of the basic uh, graphics commands. I'd love to hear about it. I could think of one person that'd be interested in uh, checking that out or finding out what that is. Who's that? Jim Jerry. Oh, yeah. Jim probably would be. He's, uh, he's the basic programmer guy. Yeah. Although, I don't know. Does he deal with any basic that's not going to run on the MC-10? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know. Jim, <laughs> let us know. Okay. So, the, I think in the last episode, we had uh, mentioned that Travis Pop uh, was interested in creating an ultimate uh, image uh, for the Coco SDC. So I've included, uh, he did announce that he had done so. He's got his take on the Ultimate SDC uh, image. Again, this is uh, what is Ultimate is somewhat uh, in the eye of the beholder. So you may or may not agree, but it's out there and you can check it out. The link is in the show notes. Okay, this link is one that's not going to appeal to everyone, but I thought it was interesting, partly because it's... Uh, from my friend from the Linux community, uh, Alan Cox. Um, Alan's been working on a retro project that spans a number of uh, um, retro computers. Uh, he's working on a Unix-like kernel for uh, basically for retro computers called, um, well, I'm not sure. <laughs> the proper pronunciation seems to still remain uh, a bit of a mystery. It could be called uh, Fusix, uh, Fuzix, or Fusix. Maybe there's some other uh, permutations on that, but 
uh, I tend to say Fusix because that's what looks normal to me. But uh, I think uh, Brett Gordon says Fusix, and since he does a lot more work on it, uh, maybe he has a more right to an opinion. <laughs> I tried to get Alan to tell me what he calls it, and he just said, yeah, it could be any of those. <laughs> 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 anyway. So his announcement comes on Google Plus, and he says, BCPL is now compiling itself on Fusix using ENCODE. The ENCODE interpreter is from Robert Nordier's V7 x86 with various type and sign fixes to make it work 16-bit. Blah, blah, blah. Right, so why is this interesting? Okay, well, BCPL... I'm not even sure what BCPL stands for, but this is an, an early programming language that is one of the direct predecessors of the C programming language. And, of course, C is a very prominent, prolific, uh, and important programming language for systems programming and at one time was more important for applications programming, although I'm not going to say that day has passed, but it's probably not as important for applicating. Um, so a number of people would have some historical interest in playing with BCPL. And so if that includes you and you're a Cocoa user uh, and you haven't been following Fusix or Fusix, um, maybe you should uh, pick your head up and take a look and um, get involved with Fusix and maybe you can play along, play along with some BCPL. How about you, Neil? Are you going to program in BCPL? Well, I, I got to figure out Fusix first. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So moving on, the next link is a comes from the Cocoa mailing list from Tim Lindner, but it's a, a link to an eBay auction that is not Tim. So it's a uh, the auction is for it's quote a rare New York Times Company Radio Shack TRS eighty color computer two process controller. And so the Cocoa itself, sort of unremarkable. The Cocoa two, um, I'm not sure the exact model number, but. Uh, it does appear to have extended basic. The only thing that's interesting is there's a, a property tag on it to, for the New York Times company. Uh, has a space for an equipment number. It's got the tag, but it doesn't actually have a number emplacement <laughs> on the tag. So I don't know if that was a mistake or or what. But the interesting part is, is it comes with a card that's um, you know plugs into the expansion port has a number of opto isolators which are you know signaling components designed to to turn on to, to be switching components basically that have provide a certain amount of electrical isolation between the two sides of the circuits and so so basically this is a some kind of uh, card designed to to turn other machines on and off basically with a certain amount of electrical isolation to protect the cocoa from whatever might happen at the other end of that circuit. Um, but there's no actual indication as to what that was. There is a ribbon cable coming off the side of it. I have no idea what you can do with this, but the rest of the circuit, excuse me, the rest of the circuit doesn't look very complicated. 74 series logic and I'm guessing there's maybe a resistor pack there in the light blue, but it's kind of a neat card. It's got its own little custom case. Uh, the problem is, is the the auction was priced. Um, the initial opening bid price is a uh, one ninety nine ninety five. That's U.S. dollars. I don't know about shipping elsewhere. It's in Texas. I'm in North Carolina. Shipping to me was thirty nine ninety five, which sounds a bit high. <laughs> so that's a little high. And so I've seen this auction run through twice, and still nobody's even bid on it. 
so I don't know what's going to happen with it. Um, I thought maybe you'd want that controller. I would like to have it, but not for $250. (laughs) 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 I hope somebody gets it eventually. Uh, I hate to see them when they're, you know, they don't seem to be sold by a cocoa person. They're priced a, a bit too high. There's always that concern that somebody else who thought they were going to get rich off of an old computer will suddenly say, well, hell, nobody wants this. I'm just going to throw it in the trash. And I hope that doesn't happen. I hope that they don't throw it away. I hope eventually they come to their senses and put it out. Well, hopefully they'll put it out for, you know, essentially no minimum bid or a dollar or whatever the minimum to start is. And then let the let the eBay folks set the price, not eBay, but let the bidders set the price. I agree. And which, you know, I don't know why more people don't do that because I see plenty of auctions that start at 99 cents and sell for $400 or whatever. I mean, the price, you're not going to change the end price very much by setting the, the beginning price way high. You're just not going to sell your thing, you know. It's so, so true. I don't know why so many sellers make that mistake. But. Yeah, I have actually, I think it's the other way around. I think you can make more money putting something up at a dollar. Yeah, well, it creates a buzz, right? Yeah, well, I've sold. I don't sell a lot on eBay. I have sold a few things that were truly rare, um, because you know I'm fortunate enough to have been doing this long enough to pick up a few things that were truly rare. <laughs> Everything that I've sold, I, I normally price at ninety nine cents for the ones that are truly rare. And I've had things sell, you know, price them at ninety nine cents opening, and then have them sell for over four hundred dollars or whatever. Um, you know, it doesn't limit your output price. <laughs> uh, occasionally, you know, if it's not going to sell, it's not going to sell. So, I mean, if you just can't let it go for a dollar, then don't put it up there. But, uh, cause somebody might come along, but if, if you're just hoping to get rich because you, you found an old computer and, you know, people pay a lot of money for those, uh, I don't think it's a good strategy. <laughs> Moving on, John Mark Mobley announced uh, Volume 35, Number 4, Winter 2015 edition of the Glenside Color Computer Club newsletter. You know, this was uh, the the Glenside folks put out this uh, newsletters uh, four times a year, I guess. I think they're quarterly. And uh, there's a lot of promotion of the Cocoa Fest here, a lot of pictures of last year's Cocoa Fest. I see see Neil, I see me. (laughs) I see a lot of other folks. Farfall. I see some Farfall. I see uh, John Mark Mobley and Kip Coon trying to hold up the Fairfield Inn and Suites sign. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. Um, so yeah, lots of cool stuff. Um, of course, announcing the coming Cocoa Fest. I thought it was cool too. They've uh, put in here uh, some links to some other things to do in the Chicago area. I don't know why they haven't done that in the past, but I thought this was a great idea. Um, links to uh, Planetarium downtown, uh, the Field Museum of natural history, which is an, an amazing museum. If, if you're, if you like history museums, of course, but there's lots of cool stuff there. Obviously there's the big T-Rex uh, skeleton in the, in the main hall, but lots of uh, cool exhibits there. Uh, they have a good Egyptian music, uh, Egyptian exhibit. Uh, I think is a part of their permanent display, but yeah, lots of cool stuff there. Medieval times, uh, the Navy pier, 
Six Flags, whatever. And then along with that, they also have a list of nearby restaurants, um, and restaurants near the uh, Cocoa Fest location, which uh, I think is uh, pretty helpful because uh, you know, you're kind of just out on the strip on Lombard uh, without a lot of other uh, stuff around. So if you're not a natural explorer, it's a little bit hard to find places to eat. Um, so it's good to know where there's some stuff. So good job on the uh, Cocoa Fest newsletter, guys. Uh, I think that was a, a nice addition. Well, they also sent that information out to the to the mailing list. Anyway, so there it is. Cool stuff. Did you get your newsletter, Neil? I did. I enjoy that read. Yeah. I like when they publish them. Very cool stuff. I'd like to check out some of the sites around Cocoa Fest, but uh, i got to be honest, I don't want to miss any minute of the actual fest. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it is only two days. You could stay an extra day or two if, <laughs> if you want well, that, to. Uh, yeah, that would be the way to do it. Although I don't, I'm not going to be able to do that with you this year. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got the barkeep. Yeah, that's true. That's our extra our extra day to be on the way out there. That's right. <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, so Rogelio Perea uh, is a uh, uh, member of the community for a long time. Posted a mailing list. Uh, where he was trying to repair a CCR82 cassette player. Happen to know a little bit about this myself because I just did uh, a very similar thing. <laughs> um, so these, uh, like so many uh, devices, uh, I don't know if that's limited to the time or uh, I don't know, maybe they still make them with belts in them, but uh, these cassette players have belts in them made out of rubber that wear out and or just dry up and become brittle. And they break. And uh, I had one that had done that. Uh, it's got three belts on the inside. Uh, two of mine had broken. Um, I think Raelio, maybe all three of his had broken. But he went out and uh, did some measurements and found some replacements and posted about uh, you know what you need, what kind of belts for the sizes of them, whatever. Uh, sounds like he had pretty good success. Um, I took a slightly different approach. You can actually get miscellaneous, uh, sort of like a grab bag of rubber belts uh, from some sellers off of eBay. Uh, so I ordered some of those, waited for them to come in, and just sort of mix and match until I find, found a few that fit mine. Uh, seems to work. I was able to load code uh, off of cassette tapes into my MC-10 with it. <laughs> Either way, still you achieve the same result. Uh, you get a working uh, tape uh, player. So keep the old machines running. Uh, it's got to be good stuff. And I have to thank you guys actually for putting those posts up, your post and uh, his, because I actually was able to repair a really expensive set of uh, studio Denon CD players for a radio station in town here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was the same problem. The trays went open, and sure enough, it was just the belts. The belts were just dry right out. Very cool stuff. All right. Well, moving on, there's been some extra news uh, since this initial link, but I'm going to start. You just keep this one since that's what I had first. But uh, so this comes from Victor Truco, part of our uh, Brazilian uh, uh, compatriots uh, working with the CP400. Uh, CP400 is essentially, for all, for most intents and purposes, it's a Coco 2, but the uh, the slot is a little bit smaller. It uh, doesn't quite fit the normal Coco cartridge, but electrically it's the same. So, for example, if you take the PCB out of the Coco cartridge and shove it in the slot, 
the games will still play, <laughs> but but the cartridge itself, the plastic or whatever, is sort of a different shape and size. A little unfortunate. Um, but for any anyway, I guess the CP400 never had the equivalent of a multi pack. But uh, if you're, you know, if you have a CP400 and you know that it runs the same software as a Cogro 2, then it ought to be fairly obvious that. If you had a multi-pack, you could use one of those as well, right? And so I guess the Brazilian guys decided they were going to have one. And so he's designed uh, a multi-pack replacement. And uh, it uh, looks like it's basically two motherboards. There's one that actually has the, the four slots. Uh, well, maybe it's five. No, yeah, four slots. And then he's got a kind of a daughter board that uh, I think that plugs into the CP400 or could be a Coco or even a dragon i guess and has a, a little like a ribbon cable that connects it to the other board um but it's a like i say it's a multi-pack replacement and so if you've if you're keeping up with the coco hobby and watching uh ebay you'll see that multi-packs have become you know, little buckets of gold or <laughs> people are pretty desperate to buy them on ebay i'm not really sure a multi-pack ought to merit that amount of uh <laughs> of expense or attention but i know uh, in in the rarity of them you don't see them show up as uh, as often as you used to yeah so i guess that's it is it's they're just kind of rare and if you if you really if you haven't had one or if you do have a real need for one then what else are you going to have right but I guess that's what's driving the price. But anyway, uh, we might refer back to this a little bit later in the uh, podcast, but we have at least one solution on the way uh, coming out of Brazil. Uh, we may have to set up some sort of import-export company to send uh, far-fall cartridges and uh, and uh, joystick adapters to Brazil in exchange for multi-pack. <laughs> Seems like they've had some other cool stuff uh, from time to time that I might like to get out of Brazil. So we may need to set that up with Daniel Campos or somebody else. And, and apparently they're going to be demoing this uh, at their fest this weekend. Yeah. So one more reason why I wish I could go to Rio. <laughs> anyway well moving on let's see this is another post from tim lindner that's the mailing list so i guess he noticed uh let's see he was playing wildcatting which is a uh, an, an old coco game and and uh he's playing it on a coco 3 using the rgb to vga uh, video adapter and uh says he was getting the wrong colors uh, I guess we figured out that um, he needed to to uh, boot up with this the MPI set to a different slot and and then execute a palette command and then switch the MPI over to the program pack or whatever. So he's got the command sequence documented here. It's you know like I say it's not real in depth technical stuff. It's more like a once you realize what you need to do, it's it's sort of obvious. <laughs> It's the, it's the whole realizing what the real problem is is always the problem. <laughs> you know, I'm sure we've all been there, right? It's like once you, whatever you're working on, once you figure out what the problem is, it's you know, turn this screw, have a turn to the right, or just solder this wire there, or you know, I, in my line of work, it's always you know, every fix comes down to one line of code. It's just knowing which line to change. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like that. Anyway, it's kind of a neat little solution to a uh, a problem that that uh, especially people new to the community might not be familiar with the different usages of the pallets on the Coco Three, or especially people that have never had an RGB output on a Coco Three. Um, 
may want to check into that. Cocoa 3, I think, by default, or at least the, the NTSC Cocoa 3, I think, comes up in, in composite palette mode um, by default. Okay, so here's another one. Not a lot of news here, but I thought it was kind of neat. Uh, on Facebook, we have uh, Rick Adams, who was a software developer for the Cocoa back in the day. He did a couple of games, including Temple of Rom. And he posted uh, a picture that uh, he says, uh, someone disassembled one of my old games, presumably Temple of Rom, <laughs> and extracted out the map. And then so he's got a picture of the map, and it's kind of cool. It's uh, Unfortunately, it's dark blue on black, so it doesn't necessarily show up very well. But it gives you kind of the uh, um, kind of the whole layout of the, of the game. Might be interesting to you, particularly if you're a fan of Temple of Rom. You like Temple of Rom, Neil? Yeah, it's a good game, and yeah. uh, it's cool to see that uh, someone took the time to do that. Yeah, I'd like to get more information on that, but unfortunately, I don't know who did it or you know if how much difficulty was involved in it. So, if you are the person who did that Temple of Rom map and sent it to Rick Adams, or if you're Rick Adams and you want to tell us uh, something about the person who did that. <laughs> we would love to hear from you either way, whether it's email or an audio submission or, you know, whatever. Definitely. Uh, I'd be interested. So send that to feedback at org, and we would love to hear from you. Okay, stepping to the next item, Toolshed Beta Release. This is from Tormod Volden. Tormod has uh, been around the community a while and does a lot of work with uh, Nitrous 9. I guess he's doing a lot of work with Toolshed as well. <laughs> Toolshed, of course, is a set of utilities. Um, that uh, help you deal with um, Cocoa disk images, both for OS 9 and, and extended uh, Color Basic. Um, there's also tools in there for dealing with cassette images and a few others. Uh, ver uh, there's some tools. I, th I think there's a tool in there for rebuilding uh, Sierra games <laughs> on the Cocoa and uh, some other stuff, too. Anyway, he's done, there's been some changes that have accumulated over some amount of time since the last uh, release, which was Toolshed 2.1. So I guess he's uh, moving towards a Toolshed 2.2 release and uh, wanted people to be aware. If you have any bugs uh, existing in the, the, what is now, what is on its way to be Toolshed 2.2, you may want to go ahead and report them, see if you can get them fixed. Are you a Toolshed user? Oh, definitely. It's great to see that Toolshed is being worked on. For me, it's a must. I mean, if you're transferring disk images or working with cassettes, you definitely need Toolshed. Yeah, I'm always surprised how many people, you know, it seems like every week somebody shows up on uh, the Facebook group or whatever and say, hey, I need to do this where I, I need to extract a file from a disk image or I need to put a file into a disk image. Uh, I think the latest one was, I want to write some basic uh, program on, with a text editor on my modern machine and then get it onto a disk image for the Cocoa. It's like, well, Toolshed has exactly the, the tools you need there, right there in, built into the copy command. There's a couple of options. But it's like people have never heard of Toolshed. Um, I think some people have trouble building Toolshed for Windows um, because, you know, it is sort of built more in a, a Unix style of Makefile. But I think there are people who have done that build, and I think you can download them. So I don't know. Maybe we should find that somewhere. But I'm <laughs> done. I've done the build on the Windows machine. It works fine. Okay. Well, so some people seem to have trouble with it, but maybe they just don't have everything they need installed or something like that. Uh, moving on, 
looking at the Retro Porch blog, which is Mark McDougall's blog, if you keep up with his blog, he's uh, Mark has over the years has done a number of of um, ports of old games uh, to uh, a variety of computers. Uh, he did Load Runner to the Coco Three uh, roughly last year, uh, and lately he's been working on a game from the from the ZX Spectrum called Night Lore, one that I was not very familiar with, but uh, I guess it has some notoriety. And uh, it's a what do you call that perspective where it's at the corner? Isometric. Isometric. That's right. And um, I guess it's from a, a list of games that. Uh, are grouped as filmation games. Um, I guess filmation was a, a rendering technique related to the isometric gameplay. I don't know a lot about it, <laughs> but uh, he's been working on that. Anyway, it's one of his recent blog posts. He announces that he's working towards uh, getting a demo together for Coco Fest. Uh, I'm kind of cooperating with Mark on that. Uh, if uh, it's probably more of a win because I know he's gotten something that will uh, work already, and I think he's still making some improvements. But uh, so when he sends me the this uh, finalized demo image, I'll burn it onto an EEPROM and uh, should have it available to show it uh, uh, at my table at Coco Fest. For those that want to see what Mark is working on, kind of hoping to work out a deal with Mark and or and me or Neil or or somebody <laughs> that can uh, work on doing some uh, publishing of cartridges for game developers in the Cocoa community, including Mark and whoever else we can talk into. Uh, we'll have to work out the details. Um, I'm not sure uh, what they'll all be right now, but hopefully we can provide a, a service to get some cartridges published and uh, with the least hassle to the authors and, uh, and hopefully provide them a, at least a little bit of a hobby income <laughs> on some of this stuff. Uh, this is not an announcement. This is more of a pre-announcement, I guess, but that's why Mark is uh, interested or well, I'm sure he's interested in getting his stuff out anyway, but that is one of the things I know Mark is interested in and uh, part of why he's interested in getting something ready for Cocoa Fest. Uh, so we have something to show there. I'm, what do you I'm think, Neil? Forward, I'm looking forward to see that game in action. Yeah, are you looking forward to building some of his cartridges? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be nice. It'd, it'd be great to see uh, more Coco games on uh, cartridge format. That would be really cool. Yeah. So, uh, Not that I don't yeah. like discs, you know. I, you know, I'm a floppy guy, but uh, cartridges. I mean, they just they last forever. Yeah, almost as long as cassette tapes, right? Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Well, anyway, moving on. There was a post um, a couple of weeks ago from um, Brian Taylor. I'm not really familiar with Brian. I don't know if he's new to the community. says he recently obtained a Coco 2 with a lot of peripherals, including disk drives, multiplayer, cars, 232, cassette tape. He's hoping to... to to load some code through the RS-232 pack. And uh, I think I talked about this in an earlier episode talking about the, the RS-232 pack. There is some uh, fairly simple file transfer capabilities built into that pack. They're so simple that they're really, they're kind of different <laughs> than what you're used to, even if you were doing file transfers back in the day. What he's trying to do is possible, or at least as what I understand who he's trying to do, you know, putting code onto the Cocoa through the serial pack. It definitely is possible. I've done it before. Uh, tried to provide some advice uh, 
to him on how to do that. I don't think I got much response, so hopefully it worked out for him. If not, Brian, feel free to send me an email, uh, or if you or somebody else who was in the thread and didn't understand what I was trying to say but would like to know, feel free to send me an email. We'll see if we can work something out. <laughs> All right, moving on. So we have a, a link posted by uh, S. Clammer. And I've seen the name for a long time in the community, but I don't know what the S stands for, so I only put S in here. So, Mr. Clammer, <laughs> uh, <laughs> feel free to fill me in on what the S stands for. Uh, and if it's Stephanie, then I'll miss Clammer or, <laughs> or whatever. I have no idea. Uh, chances are it's probably a guy, let's be honest. But if it's not, you know, I'll be happy to be corrected. Um, <laughs> anyway, you post the link to uh, a crowdfunding site called Verkami, which I don't know much about it. Looks like it must be in Europe because the, the funds are denominated in euros. The uh, So it's a project called ZX Uno. So basically, it's it's a board. It's a it's an FPGA board that's designed to to uh, emulate or to be capable of emulating the ZX Spectrum or ZX Spectrum. But the point being is that it's actually going to be capable of emulating a lot of different stuff. And so, if you're going to build a box that can emulate an old computer, uh, the point was, well, maybe you could get this box and then target the Coco 3 FPGA code or maybe the code that Roger Taylor's been working on uh, and uh, and create a Coco on top of it. And so we've sort of talked about that a couple of times. Uh, talked about, I suggested that for the MIST FPGA board. Um, and, you know, of course, we already have the, the DE... Uh, one boards that can do that, although they don't look very much like computers. I included the link because it's kind of a continuation of the theme. Uh, if you're interested in FPGA, uh, Coco uh, simulation, emulation, or recreation, or whatever you consider it, you may want to look at the ZX Uno platform. All right, so here we have a bit of an announcement, or maybe it's a, a pre-announcement. It's not a real product, I think, but we get an announcement from Chris Smith uh, that he is 3D printing uh, a case for the Coco SDC. Uh, I don't know if this is just an educational exercise or if he has some problem with the uh, Coco SDC cases available from John Strong. Maybe he just wants to do it himself, uh, has his own artistic uh, interpretation to put on it or whatever. More power to him. I think it's great. John Strong's in there replying, doesn't seem to be upset. So if John's not upset, I'm certainly not upset. Uh, <laughs> like I said, I generally don't believe in people being able to clean projects anyway. So I think it's great to see somebody out there trying to do a project. Um, looks like he's going to have uh, SD slots, uh, LEDs. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, rendered in a kind of a, a teal color with a Tandy logo. Sometimes that rendering software kind of picks whatever color it wants for you. So who knows what he'll actually print it out in. But we'll see. So there may be another source for Coco SDC cases out there from Chris Smith. Yeah, it looks like Chris just wanted to uh, try one on his own. That's what I got out of that post, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely cool. Okay, moving on to a Facebook post from Brian Blake, who is the man behind TandyCoco.com. Uh, so Brian has been doing some updates to his uh, website, forum site. Um, I think he wants it to be more of a social uh, hub f for the community. Um, 
you know, it's uh, like I say, even, even Brian often says, well, some people will question whether we need this, but I don't think it hurts. You know, I, I think he's right. Uh, it makes sense for uh, if people want to communicate a different way, let's provide a, a way for them to do so. Um, anyway, he's, he's uh, added a YouTube video page, separated the Cocoa links from the overview page, moved them to their own page. He's got some tech articles. Um, I think in a later post, he said somebody has got some sort of uh, social media connector now. It looked like he, you can actually post to Facebook from his site. Um, so it's pretty cool. Um, you know, like I said, if you're into the forum style communications, tandycoco.com is a, a good place to look for some of that. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, we're happy to report on uh, any kind of outlet for Cocoa Communications. <laughs> so Brian, keep up the good work. I think it's a good thing he's doing this because uh, not a lot of people use Facebook as well. Like, I mean, lots do, but lots don't, especially in yeah. the retro community. Yeah, there are a lot of Luddites, <laughs> whatever, that don't want to do that. You know, we, we see it on the list, day eh, from time to time. You know, people put, you know, I don't have a Facebook account or I won't use that site for whatever reason. Yeah. This I'm will give sure another opportunity people. to somebody. Yeah, I'm not sure why people are like that, but <laughs> they are. <laughs> All right, moving on. There's a mailing list post from Phil Harvey Smith uh, titled Generating 6847 Sinks. And so I think the main announcement here is that Phil is working on a board to adapt the 6847 video output output on uh, the PAL Dragons, at least, to SCART RGB, um, which, of course, SCART is a... a a video signaling standard uh, connector common in Europe. You ever use SCART up there in Canada, Neil? Do they have them up there? No. Yeah, so it's kind of cool. You could uh, have this RGB uh, connection to the TVs in uh, in Europe. <laughs> of course, then the SCART connection actually is um, complicated enough. It actually has uh, a couple of different kinds of signaling that can be in there and and uh, you can implement one and not the other. So the fact that something has a SCART cable doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work with everything else that accepts a SCART connection. <laughs> well, I, but, didn't, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think there's some signaling pins to basically say what kind of signals you accept uh-huh. or are generating. And there's you can have like composite video on a SCART connector versus RGB video on a SCART connector. And then I think they've got... I think they might have an equivalent to like an S video where you separate out the color from the, the, the Luma from the chroma. And so anyway, and you don't have to implement all of them is my understanding, or at least not everything does. Um, anyway, so Phil is working on, uh, something to do that for the Coco two. He has a similar board for the acorn atom which as we mentioned before, the Adam used the 6847 as well. He's, um, but he's asking for some advice on some uh, CPLD code uh, written in BHDL, it looks like. Anyway, it, again, it's just sort of a number one, an announcement that Phil's out there working on this, uh, this board. And number two, it's just kind of a neat little window into what kind of discussions we have on the mailing list. So <laughs> if you like the kind of in-depth technical discussions like that, uh, you know, be sure to check out the mailing list. Okay, moving on. So we've talked about Ed Snyder many times, uh, mentioned his work many times. He's a kind of a prolific contributor to the Cocoa community over the past couple of years, particularly for hardware, particularly for hardware related to video seems to be an interest for, for Ed. 
anyway, he posted a, a link said, uh, time to set aside the CAD tools and pick up the soldering iron and do some bills. Uh, and so he had pictures of a bunch of different boards that he's worked on and had sent off to get the boards back. And so he's got, uh, like I said, a number of boards covered here, one of which I think is his um, uh, um, multi-pack alternative that he's been working on, one of which I think is his board for a uh, expansion for the MC-10 that's similar to the MCX-128 in some ways, but it's essentially a, a way to put like a ROM pack on the MC-10. He has a video board that was uh, intended to be for um, uh, component-style video, um, which I think may have worked in some instances, but it turns out that, that most TVs that accept component won't accept the video signal at 240p, uh, as, which is what the Coco puts out. So it's kind of like a board that's only going to work for a certain television combinations. So I think he's probably, I think he mentioned he was setting aside that project. Yeah, so here's uh, here's the project where he's uh, working on a board uh, to take the 6847 and transplant it to another board and, and generate VGA output from it. <laughs> so lots of cool stuff going on there with Ed. It's cool that he uh, keeps us informed of what he's working on. Ed's a pretty easy guy to deal with. Uh, nice guy overall. Uh, definitely want, is a, a someone who wants to help out in the community. Very cool stuff. So... Um, Ed, thanks for sharing. I'm glad to see some of that stuff coming. And uh, like I said, I'm not going to mention uh, Ed's later post about his MPI other than to say that he is working on a multi-pack interface that has, I think, two slots and that's, seems to be uh, making some progress there. That's dubbed the mini MPI. Yeah. It's two slots. I think the second slot can be configured in software to act like either slot two, three, or four. Um, I, I don't think that's... He said as for hardware that needs to be in a certain slot, I don't think there really is any hardware that needs to be in a certain slot, but there are um, OS 9 device descriptors that by default expect hardware to be in certain slots, like the floppy controller is supposed to be in slot 4, and I think the serial port is supposed to be in slot 1. I think it's for accommodating some of that sort of thing. But uh, anyway... I think he's got a rev on that design. It's going to add some buffering and some other stuff. It's cool. It's good to see. Uh, like I said, the the multi-pack thing is something that people seem to be really interested in having. There don't seem to be enough of them floating around to satisfy the demand. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad to see somebody's trying to satisfy it. Makes you wonder if these MPIs hit the market, uh, if the original ones will go down in price on eBay. Uh, presumably they will. Um they probably won't hit the floor, but uh, one never knows, right? Okay, so the next one is is uh, again from this Jason Lee Steer. Jason, again, I hope I'm pronouncing your name reasonably well. Um, so Jason has a project where he has created a. Uh, you've heard uh, a lot of the, uh, especially people who like to play on games on the emulators. Uh, a lot of people have mentioned how they'd like to be able to use the original Coco joysticks with their emulators. And so Jason's project here, he's uh, taking an Arduino style board. I think that's what he said he's using. And he is interfacing it. It's got the analog connections to the Coco joysticks. And then he has a USB connection that goes back into uh, a regular PC and it emulates a, uh, what's called a HID or human interface device uh, style of USB device. And uh, so you can play 
Coco games on your emulator using uh, the original Coco style joysticks. Again, he and he's published a a, a Git repository uh, out on GitHub with the uh, the code uh, involved with the, his Ar- Arduino board. Uh, I'm not. I think it's an Arduino. It might be just an AVR of some sort. Anyway, uh, one way or another, if you're interested in microcontrollers, you can figure it out. <laughs> um, and it uh, looks like maybe he's had, you know, some problems with the initial design, and he's reworking some of it. Um, but people have talked about getting this style of design for a while. It really doesn't seem like technically that big a problem. Somebody just has to work it out, and so I'm glad to hear that Jason is doing that. I was taken by surprise to see that posted. That just came out of nowhere, and it's neat to see. Uh, it just looks funny to see a Tandy Deluxe joystick with a USB port. That's all I got to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there, so there is another project out there that kind of, I, th- I think the link resurfaced as part of that discussion, and I'm trying to think of who it is right now. But uh, there's a project that somebody took. It was the, the Craft-style joystick, f- which is essentially the same as the Tandy Deluxe joystick, but for the PC, or maybe it was for the PC Junior, and they had a specific board that they tied it into that created a USB output for it. I think that probably, that pretty much the exact same project could be done for the Coco. You know, it's just a different way of doing things. <laughs> you know? Anyway, like I said, it's good to have the project out there. Um, I prefer to see people playing on the original hardware. Maybe the original hardware won't last forever. And, you know, far be it for me to tell anyone they have to use original hardware if they just really want to play clowns and balloons on their PC. I'm happy for them to do it in a way that makes them (laughs) feel like they're having a good time. How about you, Neil? Do you like to play clowns and balloons on your emulator? Uh, You know I'm not an emulator kind of guy. I mean, I, I do appreciate uh, them, but, uh, you know, I, I'm into the real hardware here. Yeah. I don't take a lot of room, but. You want to load it off the cassette and. Uh... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just keep hearing that sound off the floppy drives or the tape drives. <laughs> Pretty funny. Thing. All right. Well, moving on. So the title is Five Megabytes. It comes from Gary Becker. So Gary Becker is the man behind the Coco 3 FPGA in the FPGA simulation of a Coco 3, <laughs> aptly named. So he says he has added support for up to 6 meg of memory in the FPGA code, but realistically only 5 meg will be available. The FPGA comes with 512K, but you can replace that with a 1 meg chip, and you can add a wire for an additional address line. Then he's going to have um, an analog board. So he's going to have an add-on board for the DE1 that he calls the analog board. It's going to have some extra memory. Um, one way or another, you're going to end up being able to address five mega memory on the Coco three FPGA with the analog board. Um, not really sure what the technical details are of that. You know, I don't know if there's any standard for that, if they're going to follow the Paul Barton standard for expanded memory, (laughs) or if they're going to make something up new for the Coco three FPGA. I'm not sure. But if you're interested in that and, and looking forward to having extra memory on your Coco 3 FPGA, uh, you may want to go track down the recent posts on the Yahoo group and uh, figure out what's going on. You know, all I have to say is five megabytes of memory is all you'll ever need. <laughs> <laughs> so true, so true. All right, so our next item comes from someone who's clearly a cat lover. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Mr. Neil Blanchard says he had just another reason to make it out to Coco Fest. 
<laughs> and uh, this is the project we mentioned in the intro. Uh, it's um, well, so basically, I designed the board for converting uh, the digital input from a Sega style joypad or or it could be an Atari twenty six hundred. Uh, added an, a, a little switching circuit that's triggered through the RS-232 port uh, to, so that you can use the extra buttons on the Sega Joypad. And so I did this and made Neil aware of it, and he got excited. And Neil wanted to build some boards. Neil, I'm going to let you take it from there. Well, I'm getting excited to announce that I'm uh, going to have a pile of them ready exclusively for Cocoa Fest. Then after that, I guess it'll be on uh, mail order. But uh, this adapter, I've, I've built a few already. I've actually spent some time playing on it and uh, trying out different games that I played on the Coco 3. And I have to say, it is, it is incredible. Like, I, I mean, my scores have actually, I, you know, I, I can't believe I, I was on level 10 of, uh, you know, Xenix there, that Galaxian clone. And uh, I could never do that on the Tandy Deluxe joystick. I find it easier to play on a gamepad, but maybe that's just my generation and well, my age when I, where I grew up with, right? But yeah. Definitely a cool device. Well, I'm glad it's working out for you. Uh, I've, Got a couple of prototypes I've built here, um, and like I say, uh, I think it helps certainly with some games and some gamers <laughs> just deal better with the joypad style. Some people uh, prefer the the Sega Master System style of joypad. Some people prefer the Genesis style of joypad. But the other cool thing with this device is that even if you prefer a nice joystick, I mean, now you have the option of you know using joysticks from you know, like the good Wyco ones from back in the day. Sure. Stuff on Atari, Commodore, etc. Well, especially for Coco One games, uh, you might as well use the, the Atari joysticks. You only need one button anyway. That's if you're going to do a Coco Three game that uses two buttons, of course, you'll need to use one of the Sega joypads. Um, and you know, hopefully, at some point, there'll be some Coco Three games written specifically to use the adapter that'll where you'll have to have the Genesis joypads. The hardware. I think the hardware should be able to be used with the six-button Sega joypads, but I haven't got the software worked out for it. Uh, so for now, I definitely can do the three-button Sega joypads or three plus one. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to do the six plus one at some point. Uh, and, uh, you know, imagine all the cool fighting games. <laughs> Which I think was the real reason we needed so many buttons to begin with, but Hopefully I don't know. Inspire, uh, inspire some programmers to take advantage of that. Yeah, although I don't really want to inspire too many fighting games, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a fan of them? Not in general, no. <laughs> but I guess it'd be okay. If other people want to play, especially if it's uh, you know my design for the joypads, I'm happy to have the, that <laughs> contribution. Okay, moving on. Uh, we have one from Glenn Vandenbigler, and his uh, subject is, uh, it's a man on this post, the lounge is not dead yet. <laughs> so, so poor Glenn, you know, he's had a, you know, he kind of, he's got his blogs where he posts about uh, his living situation and, and his trials and tribulations, and, and so I guess he would, I guess he got kicked out of his place where he's been living, and I'm not sure the exact reason. I don't think it's so much that they didn't like him as much as they were had different plans for the place or something like that. But one way or another, he had to relocate, and uh, uh, you know, he lives in the frozen north, so I don't know how easy it is to move up there. He talked about getting a truck and moving stuff, and he had to move his furniture by himself, and 
<laughs> you know, and, and mixed in with all that, you know, he had to, to ship out some orders and uh, I think he may have had some conflicts with the, some of his customers over the shipping. Uh, he, he covered that in his blogs too. Anyway, like I said, uh, Glenn does, uh, I think overall he's a, a friend of the community, he has some cool stuff that shows up at his place from time to time. If you like looking for uh, Cocoa stuff at Glenn's website, uh, you probably want to keep checking it out, see what's available, and, uh, you know, you never know what's going to show up. And just to uh, stick up for Glenn a little bit on the shipping, if anybody thinks his prices are really expensive, well, you know what? The shipping in Canada is astronomical. <laughs> it really is. And if you're shipping from Canada to the States, I mean, even a small little item will run you $15 minimum with tracking. Mm. Like you cannot, there's no, there's no option to ship something cheap unless it's in an envelope and it's uh, under 500 grams. Yeah. Well, we don't even know how much 500 grams weighs. <laughs> 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 yeah, I never thought of uh, well, I will, I will say, um, in truth, you know, based on uh, the private conversations uh, or at least the off-the-air conversations that I have with Neil, uh, Neil is a big fan of the U.S. Postal Service. <laughs> and if you're like me, that in and of itself is so amazing that it gives some, some truth or some credibility to his statement that uh, can, can, the Canada postal system has uh, – some serious flaws. <laughs> so anybody that loves the USPS uh, in general uh, is a, uh, comes under a little bit of scrutiny for me. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, moving on, have another announcement from Pierre Sarazin uh, version 0.1.21 of CMOC C light compiler released. So we've talked a lot about CMOC over time. Oh, you know what? Looking here, I must have missed an announcement because uh, looking at the website, he's got 0 0.1.22 uh, released. Oh, released today. So, <laughs> maybe, so there must be another announcement out there somewhere that I just haven't seen yet. Um, Hot off the press. Exactly. So fixed an optimizer bug that affected increments on a struct field in some situations. Um, the previous version, some low-level optimizations contributed by Jamie Cho. Um, Pragma Limit X Directive. Uh, so if your program gets too big, it'll, it'll stop the compilation. The, um, you can reference C functions in inline assembly. I don't know. Check out the link in the show notes to his uh, release notes uh, at his uh, CMARC page. Again, it's cool to see this tool continue to be developed um, seems to be, uh, uh, something with some legs, um, seems to be also making some inroads in the Vectrix community. So Vectrix folks, uh, you're welcome. You can borrow, uh, our Cocoa friend for a little while, as long as you give him back unharmed. <laughs> so just like we lent, uh, Mike Rowan out to the trash talk, uh, podcast, as long as I give him back, um, you know, we're free to feel free to, to, uh, to, pimp out you guys to uh, <laughs> to uh to other podcasts and other communities uh as long as you know it benefits the whole right <laughs> neil gets quiet because he doesn't know what i'm going to send him off to do <laughs> <laughs> all right well moving on okay the next link is from brett gordon and he's got uh this is uh, Fuzix, uh actually booting on a coco 2 
with Tormod Volden's Dragon NX32 port. I mentioned that uh, Tormod had done a lot of work with Nitrous 9. Well, he's also been doing some work out with Brett on Fuzix. I know Tormod has a, a memory board uh, that fits in the Dragon in uh, the Coco 2. Uh, I'm not. I think that's what's being used here to to kind of put the Coco 2 in the in the league of hardware able to run Fusix. Um, anyway, it's cool to know some guys are working on some stuff, uh, making some progress, uh, and sharing it with us. I mean, that's kind of what the whole thing's about, don't you think? Absolutely. So Brett, thanks for letting us know about that. Tormod, thanks for working on this stuff. It's great to hear about the stuff. It's inspirational. It makes me happy. Okay, one more mention from Steve Strobridge, uh, the OG Stevie Stro. Along with all his videos and his live uh, uh, marathon gaming stuff, he's now uh, got some interviews with a number of notable Cocoa people, uh, including me, Curtis Boyle, Rick Adams, Nick Marentis, um, uh, John Strong. Uh, so anyway, he's uh, grouped these um, videos. So some of them are rather lengthy, a couple of hours with the uh, Rick Adams. Um, and he's uh, got a playlist out on uh, YouTube. So we'll put the link in the show notes. You can go check it out. If you uh, don't feel like watching the gaming marathons, maybe you can uh, watch one of the interviews and uh, you know learn something about the Coco or what's going on in the community. Cool stuff. You checking out any of Steve's uh, videos there, Neil? Yep, I've checked out a few, actually. Very nice. Uh, I like those effects he does in them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Moving on, the next item is from uh, Lee Patterson, who's got his website, the uh, 8-Bit Coder. And he has... Uh, so Lee is the guy that's behind the Bouncy Ball game that we talked about in uh, some previous episodes. Hoping to meet Lee here in a couple of weeks out at Coco Fest. That's right. He's uh, coming uh, out. Yep, yeah. and so he's posted a new uh, blog entry uh, it's a lengthy entry called Optimizing an Imaginary Sprite. So one of the th- cool things that's happening in, uh, on the Facebook groups, I guess, um, we get some co- coordination and cooperation between folks um, uh, with uh, some working on some of the projects. I think probably this came out of Paul Thayer's uh, project uh, where he's working on this caveman game, which I think is partly in basic and maybe partly in assembly language. Um, and he's working with Simon Jonason, uh, who's helping him with some of the assembly language stuff. And so he was working on some sprite routines for mixing sprite data with background data. And so he posted some code and said, I've been working on optimizing this. What do you think? And then some other folks uh, kind of chimed in and said, well, I think you could do this. Oh, hey, well, what if you do that? And then... As things things go, you get a couple of revisions, and then somebody else looked at it before, didn't see anything, but now that you've revised it, they say, oh, well, now that I see this, you could do that. Anyway, he's got um, like a nine-part <laughs> blog on talking about this optimization of this sprite routine. So it's kind of a fun read, uh, check out some of that stuff, and uh, you know, see what they were working on, what kind of changes they make, maybe learn a little bit about 6809 assembly in the process. It's a good read, and it's fun. You check out any of that stuff, Neil? Yeah, I've, I've checked out uh, his blog a few times. I, I know it's not really related, but I like his name, how he goes by 8-Bit Coder. I think that's kind of cool. <laughs> you like that? Yeah. yeah. Nice okay. to see everybody helping each other, too. Yeah, it's good people working together. That's nice. Yes, I know uh, Simon, he's tried to help me a few times with, uh, he's trying to get me going on an assembly. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Okay, so I mentioned Alan Cox a little earlier. 
Um, so along with working on the Fusix, Alan has been doing some work with the MC-10. <laughs> and um, then now it kind of, maybe not quite out of the blue. I mean, a lot of people knew he was working on some of this stuff, but sort of without much ado, he made an announcement on the MC-10 Yahoo group. It says, I've uploaded Scott Adams' Adventureland and the set of Brian Howarth Mysterious Adventures. These should now all work and have working score save load. As far as I'm aware, they're now fully functional. Uh, says I'll get some time. I'll upload the other shareware, freeware, release Scott Adams games, Pirate through Return to Pirate, along with Buckaroo Bonsai. Then he says the game generator source is at, and he's got a GitHub link. So it should also properly convert the Hulk, Spider-Man, Super Grand, Gremlins, Robin of Sherwood, and Seas of Blood. Uh, except the FF Combat, which is specially coded. I'm not sure, familiar with Seas of Blood, so I'm not sure what that means. says he has not included those games because, as far as you know, they've never been made freely available. But if you have a legitimate copy, you can generate the relevant C10 top file using the tools. Uh, and then he has a list of other games that are not handled. The final thing is, that in, in anyway, with luck, that's still 26 new MC10 games, plus another six if you have them for other platforms. Kind of a single-handed, one fell swoop, uh, 32 new games for the MC-10. Wow. Not bad. <laughs> one way to boost a library. Yeah, very exciting stuff. Definitely thank you to Alan there for uh, on behalf of the MC-10 folks. Good to see that kind of activity and uh, definitely setting a high bar. You, you like those kind of adventure games, uh, Neil? Yeah, I do. I've, I've been a big fan of those games, actually. Cool. Well, now, do you, when you get your MC-10... You've got uh, yes a couple of dozen uh, Scott Adams adventure games you can load up and uh, play on your MC10. Really Learn to hate to... the MC10 keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I hear. <laughs> All right, so the next uh, announcement uh, comes from Nick Morentis. He's uh, got another Pop Star Pilot blog entry, number twenty-six. Seems like that's been uh, something every month lately. So if he's going to have a regular schedule, you might have to drop him out of the announcements because then they're not news, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so he calls this one the final countdown and kind of makes it sound like it's getting close to a release. Uh, I hope that's true. Got a list of uh, changes. Uh, I won't read them to you because then what fun would it be for you to read the blog? <laughs> so go check it out uh, if you're a Pop Star Pilot fan. You might be getting close to some satisfaction on that one. Uh, let's hope. Yeah, yeah. After reading that that uh, blog entry, it looks like he's pretty close. Okay. Well, I've got one kind of sad one, and then a couple more that are more lighthearted to, to alleviate the mood. But so this message, uh, forget where I found it. Actually, um, I think somebody posted it in one of the more generic retro computing groups. The title of this it's essentially a blog is that the sixth stage of grief is retrocomputing. And so basically this is uh, the story that just talks about a, a kid who had a, a friend, you know, it's like an, a, sounds like an older gentleman who kind of befriended him in the neighborhood and uh, uh, all above board, of course. That, <laughs> um, um, you know, someone he had known in the past, uh, but uh, he learned that the person had died, and then uh, he got to thinking about their friendship and how they had uh, done a, a, a lot of work uh, together or, or using the Commodore Amiga, I guess, 
uh, and how, you know, there was this, this technical connection for them, but it actually, how they built a, a friendship around it. And it's kind of, uh, some reminiscing about how things were done back in the day and whatever else. And some of it delves into some technical stuff, but then it talks about his personal connection to his friend, Tom, and, uh, you know, how he kind of, you know, relive some of that thinking about Tom after he had passed, which, you know, it's kind of a familiar story. Sometimes you, you don't figure out how important somebody was to you until, uh, until they're gone. Right. Yeah, I think we've so all true. probably had that experience, but yeah. I thought it was touching cause you know, it, that's part of, you know, we, it's easy to see that nostalgia for the past is, is a component in being involved in retro computing, but it's not just pure nostalgia. It's not kind of, you know, the way we all enjoy sitting in a in a 50s car with fins on the back or whatever. It's just nostalgia or <laughs> or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's actual people there. There's people behind that. I know, uh, you know, that's that's what keeps me going to Cocoa Fest is the people definitely made some good friends there. Um, you know, I've been going to Cocoa Fest long enough that uh, I've actually had a couple of people I knew through Cocoa Fest that have passed away. Uh, and, you know, these are people that I've met a half a dozen times a year apart. <laughs> and yet when I learned over the email that they had died in a, in a state far away, I actually some of them actually sat and cried. Because <laughs> you know you just get to know people, and they remind you of the of people that you knew before, or people in the past, or other people in your life, or whatever. You get to know them, um, and you know you get that personal connection. And you know it's a cliche, perhaps, but you know I think we're missing a lot of personal connections uh, in life these days. Part of it's just getting older, but part of it's the the different world we live in. Um, and I think some of us maybe that's part of what our nostalgia is, is for not just for the old computers, but maybe for the times that the computers came from and the, the way people used to relate to each other. Anyway, there's a link in the show notes, uh, the six stage of grief in retro computing, uh, a six stage of grief is retro computing. Um, it's a little bit of a tearjerker, but, uh, I think if you enjoy feeling emotion, <laughs> then you'll enjoy reading it. Uh, did you get a chance to read this one, Neil? No, I haven't, but I'm going to check it out. But uh, I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, the retro computing hobby, I mean, that's actually one thing that draws me to it is is the people. I mean, that's why I like going to Cocoa Fest and you know, being on the mailing list and the Facebook group and so on. It's just a great, great bunch of guys. Yep, definitely, definitely. Yep. And uh, some of them have gone too soon. All right, anyway, moving on. Like I said, I've got a couple of extra news items to clear the air, lighten the mood a little bit before we end this, the uh, topic. Some of us might be familiar with a, a print magazine from the past called Micro. started out as Micro, the 6502 journal, and uh, later became uh, Micro, the 6502 and 6809 journal, or 6502 slash 6809 journal. Anyway, um, I guess the owners of or the publishers of Micro... Yeah, Robert M. Tripp um, has granted permission uh, as the sole copyright owner uh, to uh, some people who have put scans of Micro up on the web, PDFs. They have, uh, looks like, about eight years worth of it on there. Um, 
coverage of the obviously it used to be called the 6502 journal you're gonna have a lot of coverage of the apple II and some of the other 6502's uh, systems are a little heavy but in the later issues once they become the 6502 slash 6809 journal there is some color computer coverage and some generic 6809 coverage it could be of interest to the people listening to this podcast so um if you're done reading all your back issues of Rainbow Magazine and uh, <laughs> the other color computer magazines, uh, here's one more you should add uh, to your reading list. The, 60, the micro, the 6502 slash 6809 journal. Great to see another magazine saved. Definitely. Definitely. Very exciting. Okay. So one more. I think in previous episodes, I've mentioned uh, the uh, Stellation, Stellation 2, the mill card, which is a card for the, for the Apple II that uh, plugs into the Apple II, but it has a 6809 processor on it. And so it basically allows you to turn the Apple II into a 6809-based machine, uh, or at least you can, the, the 6502 on the Apple II can turn over control to the 6809 on the card. So there were a couple of versions of the card, or really I think just one version of the card that uh, had a memory map, a certain memory map, that um, unfortunately was not really conducive to running OS 9. And so then they came out with a daughter card you can install. Uh, you could pull out a chip and plug in this card. Uh, and that would make, that would change the memory map that the card, that the 6809 on this card saw so that it was conducive to running OS 9. But it, unfortunately, this was not every one of these cards had that. Obviously, it's why well, it was a daughter card. Uh, and unfortunately for me, the one that I have doesn't have the daughter card. And so that was one of my back burner uh, projects that uh, someday uh, I could uh, you know, build my own daughter card to, to, uh, to perform that function. Either that or maybe I could <laughs> figure out how to make Nitrous 9 or Fusix or something work with the other memory map. Anyway, just this week... Someone came on to the Yahoo group for uh, the Apple 6809 Yahoo group, which uh, covers installation to the mill and some other similar cards, announcing that he was uh, in progress on building a, a replacement daughter card for the for the uh, the mill card. And within a couple of days, he announced that he had his prototype up and working and uh, was hoping to produce, uh, uh, you know, go into production on uh, on uh, reproduction cards. So very exciting. If like me, you have one of the uh, the mill cards that doesn't have the Nitrous Nine daughter card, you may be in luck. You may be able to buy one uh, hopefully very soon. Very exciting stuff. Good news all around, huh? I can see porting <laughs> Farfall to that now. <laughs> well, that's possible. There is a, an Apple II port for Farfall already, but of course it's on the 6502. Well, I think that is more than enough news for the evening. <laughs> so yeah. uh, we're going to call an end to this segment, and we'll be back with some feedback. All right. And now we're on our way to the Vintage Computer Festival in Atlanta. What do you have to say for yourself, Junior? I prefer Indiana. We named the dog Indiana. Okay, now we're back with some feedback. We do have feedback from uh, a couple of listeners this time around. No audio feedback this time. I guess Mike was busy with his new uh, trash talk friends. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but anyway, we have um, so we have two separate comments uh, from uh, L. Curtis Boyle. 
Um, I think he got one out and then forgot that he uh, wanted to say something else. <laughs> but, um, so talking about the Orchestra 90 segment, um, um, he had a few comments about um, you know programming the 6-bit DAG versus the Orchestra 90. And points out that uh, while John Strong's uh, game supported Orchestra 90, that uh, I don't think that Steve Bjorks did. I think I mentioned in my segment that maybe they did, but I, I think he's right. I don't, I don't think Steve Bjorks' game supported the Orchestra 90 after all. Uh, talking about in the Kim guy game when he was uh, um, porting that over to OS9, I guess he found that there were 8-bit samples. Um, and so he was able to just use the 8-bit samples to feed the DAC on the Frank Hogs, uh, Frank Hog Labs TC9. And then he uh, could also then feed them to the Orchestra 90. Um, anyway, he sums up that message with the quote that... Uh, Quote, to me, the mod tracker is the best example of using, uh, and of course, the Orchestra 90 is what he's talking about. So the mod tracker is a, an audio player from uh, from uh, John Kowalski, Sockmaster, for playing the mod-style audio files, which originated in the Amiga community. What mod trackers are basically collections of, of sampled sounds and then uh, orchestration files that, that kind of string them together and <laughs> that seem like a reasonable description. We basically piece together it's a bunch of samples and it makes it like yeah. an actual song or a remix. A lot of remixes yeah. and almost scenes seem to use those those files back in the day. Oh yeah, definitely. But uh, but yeah, I think they're built around some samples, which is why they were you know they originated on the Amiga, which also had a, a DAC for playing uh, samples rather than a sound generator. Uh, so they're a nice re- fit for playing on the Coco, uh, including on the Orchestra 90, because it like I say, it's a DAC. You actually put uh, audio samples in there rather than trying to set up a sound generator. I remember back in the day with the. Um with the Amiga or a friend of mine had an Amiga and I had the Coco three. I used to get teased all the time because it couldn't play mod files. Well, then when I got back into the Coco scene, what do I find on uh, doing some Google searches? I find this mod player, this mod track. Yeah. And I was blown away. <laughs> the color computer three can actually play in full stereo sound with uh, animation, oscilloscope waveforms. Yeah. That's amazing. Pretty cool stuff. But I don't know. Yeah, I think that's one of those where the Amiga guys always seized on to some stuff that they felt made their machine superior. And while it was a nice machine, a lot of the stuff they seized on as somehow making their machine superior maybe wasn't necessarily all that much of a strength. (laughs) Or in some cases, you know, I mean... I don't know. I mean, being able to play samples is cool and definitely adds flexibility, but it also means you have to shuffle samples. Now, of course, in the Amiga's case, they did it with DMA, so the CPU, I guess, wasn't really involved. So maybe it was superior in that case, but I don't know. The big thing with the Amiga was always the preemptive multitasking, and no other machine can do that. And said, so, well, of course, the, the Coco was doing it uh, <laughs> quite a bit earlier uh, with OS 9. Anyway, we don't want to pick any fights here, certainly not with any rabid Amiga users, because they just won't stop anyway. (laughs) All right, moving on. Curtis had a second comment. Uh, This one's directed at you, Neil. Uh, Pointing out that Time Time Bandit, which was a game you reviewed in the last episode, Time Bandit originally started on the TRS-80 Model 1 slash 3. So, I don't know if, uh, if that... 
Well, it's something that you mentioned or not. No, um, I, I didn't know. I, I actually wasn't aware of the Model 1 and 3 versions. Um, it almost makes me want to get an emulator just to try it. And uh, the other thing he did mention, uh, we can call it a bug report in my uh, game segment, is that I mentioned that Computer Shack and uh, Mitchtron were two separate companies, but actually Computer Shack, or he writes to me, he said Computer Shack actually changed its name to Mitchtron. And that's due to legal reasons from Radio Shack. Huh. How about that? All right. Well, thank you, Curtis, for contacting us, providing us that feedback. So, like I said, we love having uh, some input from uh, from our listeners. That way we know people are actually listening. <laughs> so we know Mike Rowan is listening. And uh, he tells us that, uh, he says, quote, you guys deserve a lot of credit for creating some great buzz in the Coco community. Well, I hope so. That's kind of part of the intent. To create some buzz, keep people excited, keep people interested. Of course, we want to get all those people to come to Cocoa Fest. <laughs> that's, um, that's the goal. But even if you don't come to Cocoa Fest, uh, having a nice, lively community for the rest of us who do make it to Cocoa Fest to talk about, uh, that's still a big bonus, don't you think? For sure. <laughs> all right. Very good. Well, thanks, Mike. It's always good to hear from you. Hope to see you at Cocoa Fest in a couple of weeks. All right, final feedback item. This comes from Brian Blake. He says, I was the one writing the Coco content on the RTM, which is a Retro Gaming Times Monthly. Uh, so on the RTM before its demise, I intend to write articles in the future. So we mentioned that the Retro Gaming Times, which had formerly been Retro Gaming Times Monthly, but the Retro Gaming Times had been relaunched. Um, we mentioned that in last episode. And... Uh, so it sounds like uh, Brian hopes to provide some Cocoa content there, so we should be all be looking for that. Brian, if you do get something published, make sure to let us know, so we'll include uh, that information in our future episodes. All right, well, I think that covers our feedback this week. Uh, no audio feedback. Well, you know, I'm sorry, but we do like to get the audio feedback, so somebody send us some audio, even if it's something silly. <laughs> something we can mix in there. Yeah, we, you know... Or, you know, if you happen to find some long-lost uh, Radio Shack commercial on YouTube <laughs> or uh, Isaac Asimov singing the praises of the cocoa or something like that, well, we'd like to hear about that stuff, too. Um, anyway, send your feedback to feedback at cocoacrew.org or any of the other addresses mentioned earlier in the program, and we would love to, to hear from you. Hold tight while we pause for the cause. You are listening to the Coco Crew Podcast with Neil Blanchard and John Linville. Like how I switched those names around? I'm the original gamer Stevie Stroh, and I'm a coconut. And if you're a coconut too, then visit I'mACoconut.com for all kinds of cool cocoa links, including my YouTube gaming videos. So visit I'mACoconut.com and long live the cocoa. Back to you, Neil and John. All right. Well, now we're back. Um, as we've been saying for several months now that our host discussions uh, have been popular. We continue to believe that. If we're wrong, then you need to send us some feedback to tell us that we're wrong. <laughs> but uh, certainly, uh, at least our printer discussion seems to be the gift that keeps on giving. We get a lot of feedback related to that. Um, hopefully, you enjoyed some of our other topics. Hopefully, you'll enjoy the one that we're about to embark upon now. So... Um, like I said, uh, my influence on the topic discussion, either whether I invent the uh, topics or when, in this case, I think it largely was Neil's suggestion, but I always like to uh, to uh, 
uh, massage the topics into the form of a question because that's just how I roll. <laughs> so this month's question is, where do you keep your cocoa stuff? And so the motivation here is uh, I am predicting a uh, some new stuff to arrive that I don't want to have to shuffle too much old stuff around to accept. And so I went today and, uh, and uh, acquired some uh, storage space at a local uh, self-storage location. And uh, that kind of brought us around to the topic of where do you keep your stuff? Uh, so I've been talking a lot. I'm going to let Neil talk a little bit about where he keeps his stuff, and I'll chime in as we go. How's that? Well, um, first of all, I'd like to say that when it comes to storage lockers, I think uh, that's more of a it's a bigger thing in the USA than it is in Canada. Because uh, I know for a fact I would definitely like to have a storage locker, but it's not really possible here. It is, but it's it's really expensive. It's just, uh, it's almost not even feasible. I looked at getting a storage locker when I was moving uh, about five years ago, and it just, it was out of the question. Uh, where I keep my cocoa stuff? Uh, I keep it in the basement. I got a pretty nice setup down here. It's kind of like a little mini museum. And uh, I got a storage room with extra cocoa parts, you know, just in case something fails. Trying not to hoard, but uh, <laughs> I, I guess, what do we say in that other episode? You know, once you hit four or five, uh <laughs> Yeah, well, one man's hoarding is a, another man's collecting, I guess. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I won't judge you too much on hoarding unless you're hoarding the stuff that I want, <laughs> <laughs> which is ultimately, I think, what most people uh, complain about. Uh, nobody's yeah. mad about the person who has 25 copies of Clowns and Balloons. But They're mad about the people who have 17 multi-pack interfaces and want to put pictures of them on uh, Facebook. And for the record, no, I'm not hoarding a whole pile of MPIs. So uh, <laughs> we're safe there. <laughs> oh Lord. Well, so yeah. So where do you keep so, your uh, cocoa collection? Well, so, you know, I have a lot of stuff I've collected over the years. Uh, originally before I got too deep into cocoa, I actually was more of a, um, uh, an arcade collector. So uh, having arcade cabinets, uh, I do have a pinball machine, which is a long story. Anyway, so I kind of de developed a need for some, uh, uh, like you say, cold storage or storage lockers kind of early on. Uh, and so I have a storage locker uh, with arcade stuff in it. And I have a, I think I have a couple of cocoa hardware items in there, but I've never really wanted to keep um, media in there because you know the the weather, even though it's dry, you know you still get a lot of temperature variation, and so definitely no no uh, diskettes or or cassettes out there. Uh, I don't even really like to keep paper uh, in those kind of conditions because it kind of degrades. Um, plastic uh gets brittle um you know i don't some of it just is old it gets brittle but i think it's not too good for it to be exposed to to heat you know it gets pretty hot around here in the summertime um you know 100 degrees fahrenheit is not uncommon uh and then nothing wrong with that temperature <laughs> well depends on uh i think maybe if you lived in it you'd less like it less uh <laughs> but uh, um you know, so I don't like to keep much cocoa stuff uh, in in uh, storage that's not climate controlled. So I end up with a lot of cocoa stuff in the house. You know, I have a bonus room above the garage that um, is packed 
with stuff a, a bit more than most people would really like to more than what most people would be proud of. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, and I have both Coco stuff and some other retro stuff. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, well, like I said, so I did just get uh, a storage locker today and I went ahead and sprung for an indoor facility with the uh, climate control it's actually the this the place sells itself as a wine storage <laughs> place, so you can get small storage lockers that are uh, intended to store your wine collection. <laughs> um, I'm not storing any wine in mine, but uh, the climate control appealed to me so that I could have a place kind of offsite where I could stick media, uh, including paper and and diskettes and and cassettes and that sort of thing so i don't know it, it i had to pay i'm paying about a dollar per square foot per month you know you can kind of work that out based on what you think i might need for my collection <laughs> um but for the climate control it was about 25 or 30 percent more than the than the outdoor stuff uh which i thought was worthwhile if, you're, you if you want to keep the stuff in good shape i really think that's a good thing yeah. So, you know, it's a shame, you know, it's a shame to save this stuff that's, that has been, uh, survived 30 or 40 years and then go and shove it somewhere that it deteriorates within four or five. So I don't know. I do have, you know, some of my arcade storage that, like I said, is, uh, it's a bigger, it, there's, there's more storage there because <laughs> the boxes are bigger. Um, one problem I do have there is even though it's all closed up, um, it still tends to get a lot of dirt and dust inside. And so it's not too bad on the arcade machines. You kind of brush them off and they look fine. They do kind of collect some dirt inside, but you vacuum them out once in a while. It's not a big deal, but it just feels like a bigger deal when it's your cocoa and you're getting dirt and grime down in the keyboard or all in the motherboard. You got to disassemble everything to, to get down and to clean it up or whatever, or inside your disk drives, that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, so I think it's worthwhile to have climate-controlled storage, um, whether it's in your house. Um, if you're not as crazy as I am, then you can probably keep most of your cocoa stuff in your house. You said you keep yours in the basement. Uh, how how is your basement? Is it, does it stay nice and dry up there? It does. Yeah, it's pretty dry. And in the summertime, I use a dehumidifier, so mm -hmm. I keep it uh, keep it nice and dry here, so it doesn't get too humid. Yeah, so where I live, um, the the water table tends to be fairly high. So people that have basements, a lot of them have to have sump pumps uh, to keep uh, the water out. And, and even then, it's pretty humid in the basement. You have a lot of problems with mold and that sort of stuff. Yeah, we do have a sump pump here. Uh, most places do. But uh, it's not too bad. As long as you have a dehumidifier for the summer months, it's good. And the winter, it's it's ultra dry. It's almost too dry. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> cool well so where else would you keep stuff um you know friend's house uh, yeah you keep them at a friend's house the problem is keeping the friend in the net case but uh i'll tell you i did have um you know several years ago um i had an opportunity to get a kind of a big cocoa haul uh and uh somebody posted to the list that they were up in new york and uh uh had a bunch of cocoa stuff they wanted to get rid of and it turned out they were 
just a few miles away from where a friend of mine lived and he happened to be kind of a retro computing person. And so I said, dude, call this guy, tell him where you live, let him drop some stuff off and I'll come up in a couple of weeks and pick it up. Right. (laughs) And so he did. And he kind of chuckled when he told me he had done it. Uh, but I didn't quite get the message. Uh, so I got up there. It may took, it may have taken me three or four weeks, but I went up there and the guy had basically filled my friend's living room with box after box after box wow. of cocoa stuff. And a lot of it was hardware, but a lot of it was just books. And so I have like these photogra- photocopied manuals of cocoa software, like, you know, just pick a name, Telewriter 64 or, <laughs> or, or whatever kind of comparable era of stuff. I have all kinds of documentation for that sort of stuff on, like you said, they're photographs of dot matrix printouts or if not photograph photocopies of dot matrix printouts, uh, bound in, in, uh, Peugeot maintenance binders <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> so I still have some of that stuff. But anyway, so yeah, you keep keep your stuff at your friend's house. Well, you can do that for a while, but I, I don't recommend it long term. Yeah. Uh, mom's house, maybe you can do that. Uh, your mother's house, uh, it probably depends on your mother. Yeah, that only lasts for so long, by the way. Uh, I've learned from experience. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't lose any cocoa stuff that way, but I definitely have had stuff that I left at uh, my mother's house too long that uh, eventually disappeared with no warning. <laughs> and I guess you could say, well, I had warning year after year. You could say, well, are you ever going to get rid of that stuff? Uh, well, yeah, eventually I'll get it. Just let me know. I, so I would think that's implied that, well, call me before you actually throw it away, throw it out. But no, that didn't work. Yeah, <laughs> so, the 10-year plan, and then after that, it's uh, kind of a free. Well, yeah. I mean, like you say, you leave something around 10 years or whatever. Uh, like I had a bunch of old uh, Dungeons & Dragons uh, first edition rules, manuals, and that sort of stuff that uh, were at my mom's house. And uh was she didn't seem like she was in any hurry to get in any hurry to get rid of them, so I was in no hurry to 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 bring them home. And then uh, one day I was like, huh, "I should get those out. Where are they? Oh, I don't know. I think they disappeared. What do you mean you think they disappeared? It's like talking to one of the kids, you know." <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Anyway, so. Try to avoid storing your cocoa stuff anywhere where you don't control it. Um, but in terms of uh, physical spaces, best to keep them dry. What do you think about dark versus light? You know, on like the plastic yellowing or whatever. Do you think it makes much difference? Yeah, you know, I I don't know. For uh, one time, I used to think that fluorescent lighting caused yellowing on the on the computers, but I, I don't really believe that anymore now. I just think it's in the plastic. Yeah. Obviously obviously sunlight's going to do it. If you have, you know, if you have your stuff by a window, that's not good. Um, Yeah. Well, it's like, say the definitely you get some machines get darker at different rates than others. So there must be some environmental factor, but I'm not really sure what it is. And it seems like there's always an example. Well, I had my machine in the window forever and it looks fine. And there'll be somebody else's, I had this in the dark and it looks fine. You know, I had this one next to the hot water heater and it's fine. Uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to tell. I mean, uh, 
you know, cigarette smoke will definitely ruin them. That's that's yeah. for sure. Well, that definitely you, you do. You can tell when it's been around a smoker. Yeah. Um, you can tell when it's just been in dirt. Sometimes, sometimes it's like they've been out and somebody buried them in the dirt. Yeah, those, <laughs> those ones I actually like because you can bring those back. Yeah. Get a good find on a cocoa, you know, for a couple of dollars. It's been in the dirt. That's great. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, that's one of those. I do find that well, retro computers in general, I, I think, are a lot tougher than people imagine, and cocos definitely seem to be pretty good. I'm not really scared of getting most cocos unless I know for sure it's already not working. Um, right. You know, usually they you plug them in, they turn them on. Most of the time, they work. That's my experience. Yeah, same. Um, here. You know, it's funny. The retro computers are the most durable, and yet they only came with a 30 day warranty. <laughs> well it's a different time you know yeah i mean they could have they could have put a 20-year warranty on there and they still they still would have been all right they would have been all right because the companies would have been gone by the time they expired. Yeah. yeah that too uh, oh well here's another question then while we're on this topic um so say you get a storage locker uh do you tell your better half about it <laughs> <laughs> well i think the right answer is yes, <laughs> right? Um, it kind of depends on, uh, you know, what sort of finances you have set up, I guess. Um, so, you know, because I don't like, uh, I don't like to have to remember things. I, I went ahead and authorized them to charge my credit card for the monthly rent. So if you have a credit card with a different statement and you get the same kind of deal, then I guess you could get away with not telling <laughs> your spouse. Yeah. Uh, I don't really recommend it, um, no. but, uh, you know, it depends on, uh, you know, your exact situation, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I guess the so then the problem is, uh, you know, you know, there's always going to be that person who you have, a, there's always that spouse that uh, it's like, oh, well, you, you went and got some storage? Well, that's great. I've been wanting to find a place to put that old couch that we got from my mother's house when she <laughs> died. Or, or <laughs> I've been wanting to find a place to put that statue I sculpted that I just can't get rid of or, or, you know, whatever we all have <laughs> crazy spouses, I guess, or maybe we're the crazy spouses. Uh, or you can get the line and I'm sure uh, some retro collectors have got this. If you have to put it in storage and you're not using it, then you don't need it. Well, and I'm, that's a pretty good argument perhaps, but, um, but you know, there's lots of stuff I don't need. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, so need is kind of a relative term, I guess, but, um, I don't know. I can't be doing this podcast and be a big advocate for, for getting rid of everything that you don't absolutely need. Right. Yeah, <laughs> minimalist. Uh, most of us don't really need a cocoa. It just is something that makes us happy. We all need to be happy. So therefore, right. We need it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but, well, anyway, yeah. Um, have we beat this to, get to death or is there more to discuss? I think this was a good one. <laughs> okay. Kind of leads us into Cocoa Fest, right? You know, you never know how much stuff right. you're going to go home with. Well, that's the main thing, right? You should settle where you're going to keep your stuff so that you have a, a plan for what to do with the stuff you buy at Cocoa Fest when you get home. And if you have to sneak it in the back door, I mean, that works too. Yeah, or get the uh, storage locker down the road. You can just stop there on your way home. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
guess that probably covers our host discussion this time. So then soon uh, we'll be back with a technical discussion on the speech sound pack. And then later, uh, Neil's game review and uh, very exciting stuff. All right. Well, good afternoon. My name is Tony Pedraza, and I am the host of the annual last Chicago Cocoa Fest. We call it the last in quotes because we really don't know if we're going to have another one. And we haven't known every year for the past 17 years. Okay, everyone. This is John, and I'm back with this month's tech segment. I'm going to be talking about the Tandy speech sound cartridge or pack. For some reason, I always want to call it the sound speech pack. That seems to roll off the tongue a bit better for me. So if I say it in that order, please forgive me. Uh, So what is it? So the speech sound cartridge uh, is a way of providing better audio output from your Coco. Um, probably should have done this in a different order. This one actually came out before the Orchestra 90, which we talked about last month. Um, but anyway, unlike the Orchestra 90, the speech sound cartridge actually has some uh, rather specific hardware for generating uh, audio without involving the CPU. So there really is some magic happening (laughs) in the speech sound package. Um, there's, uh, chips there's a, a sound generator chip there's a um, voice synthesis chip uh, there's actually a little microcontroller in there to um, coordinate between the other chips uh, for access to the CPU but also uh, I think is there for mapping um, text to the allophones used in the uh, uh, voice synthesis um, but anyway, uh, along with the text-to-speech, um, which can be uh, uh, well, it can be text-to-speech, or it can be uh, can create the speech through the direct allophone uh, selection uh, in software. Uh, the sound generator uh, can produce uh, three voices of sound over an eight-octave range, and I think one of those voices can be noise uh, as well. So. <laughs> Anyway, there you have it. It's a it's a sound card uh, on a uh, for the Coco. Uh, it's not unlike the uh, the later Sound Blaster for the PCs and that sort of thing. Um, a little history: the Sound Speech Pack, sorry, the Speech Sound Pack or cartridge, first appeared in uh, RSC12, the Radio Shack catalog, uh, the Radio Shack computer catalog, RSC12. Um, it was in 1985. Uh, it appeared on page 53 with a little new for 85 label uh, at a price of $99. And I think I noted in the uh, previous month's episode that by the time the Orchestra 90 was released, uh, it had dropped down to, I believe, 79 dollars which was the same price as the Orchestra 90. But so anyway, so this is 1985. The cartridge is built around uh, uh, basically a complete set of chips from a company called General Instruments. Now General Instruments uh, was a company that had was based in Pennsylvania. They had sort of made their business out of building TV game stuff. <laughs> so back in the days when when Pong was the king of the, the uh, home computer world um, there eventually came out these chips that were, you know, Pong on a chip, 
uh, or variations of Pong on a chip, and the premier or one of the premier suppliers of these uh, was General Instruments. Anyway, at some point they moved on to other gaming stuff, I guess, or at least uh, uh, some other game-related stuff in, in, in having audio chips available. And um, so they moved on to uh, Programmable Sound Generator, and uh, they also have speech synthesis chips, and eventually... Um, well, they actually uh, produced uh, chips for the Intellivision, <laughs> and including, I guess, I'm not sure, I think they actually produced the the uh, CPU for the Intellivision, um, yeah, the CP1600. They actually produced a whole chipset for the Intellivision, but one of the things they eventually in- produced as part of that uh, was... Uh, what some people say is stood for peripheral interrupt controller or programmable interrupt controller or PIC uh, or the PIC. When the PIC was a micro pro- microcontroller that actually kind of survived the company and continues to this day as a, a microcontroller for uh, used in a variety of electronics projects, um, professional and hobbyist. Uh, and then an early pick actually found its way on the uh, sound or speech sound cartridge as well. So very exciting stuff. <laughs> what it's worth, the programmable sound generator that is in the speech sound cartridge, the AY three eighty nine thirteen, is a variation of the eighty nine ten. That chip actually was going to appear. Uh, in a standalone configuration, uh, or at least not really standalone, it was going to be on the motherboard of the Deluxe Coco, but accessed directly from the 6809 rather than going through the arbitration of a microcontroller. Uh, that would have been nice to have, but alas, it did not come to pass in any meaningful form. <laughs> okay, moving on uh, to usage. So, there's not any built-in software uh, for at least no Coco software on the uh, speech sound cartridge. Uh, the ROM uh, software that's there is just for the microcontroller. In fact, I don't think you'll even find a ROM on there. Yeah, looking at the schematic, there's no ROM there at all. There's an, a RAM, the sound generator, the 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 PIC microcontroller, the the voice synthesizer chips and some miscellaneous other chips, but no ROM at all. There are a number of uh, Coco games that that did come out eventually to support the um, the synthesizer. Um, a lot of them were Steve Bjork games, uh, Ganabuana, uh, Pitfall 2. Uh, variety of other games, Gold Runner, Gold Runner 2, uh, Interbank Incident apparently supports it, uh, Pegasus and the Phantom Riders, um, F-16 Assault, Gantlet, there's a variety of others, um, there's listed out at Cocopedia, I've got a link in the show notes, so you can go and check it out if you like. There are, uh, examples in, provided with a manual written in BASIC of how to program the 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 audio generation capabilities of the board. Um, you can probably find those already on diskette images uh, out of the community. Um, and I think there were probably were some pretty, plenty of examples printed in variety of of uh, 
rainbow magazines and such but I'm not going to cite any of those uh, specifically because uh, you know I'm lazy <laughs> but yeah outside of the cocoa these chips were used in a variety of of applications um, not in this try uh, configuration or whatever but you know the, the programmable sound generator at least in the 8910 form um, was uh, uh, using a variety of arcade games and then the television and the Vectrix game consoles and uh, some version of the Spectrum had it the ZX Spectrum and the Mockingboard cars for the Apple II um, there were some later some Yamaha chips that were essentially the same chips. Uh, one of those found its way into the Atari ST. So yeah, so that's used quite a bit. The the uh, the voice synthesizer chip um, is used. Uh, let's see. Well, it's used in a, in a variety of add-ons. Um, um, one's called the Cura Microspeech. Uh, from which I guess was used across a number of other platforms. Um, uh, there was the IntelliVoice add-on for the IntelliVision used a variation on the Magnavox Odyssey. Radio Shack actually sold the, these chips separately for, for experimenters too in a couple of variations. Um, the, uh, the, the voice synthesizer chip, the S SP0256 uh, um, had the different variations had different allophones, uh, which are allophones are basically components of speech, uh, the raw sounds or whatever. Uh, so the different variations had different allophones, so you couldn't necessarily just swap SPO256 chips one to another. You had to have the right allophone version, or else you'd get the wrong sounds produced. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's move on from here. So yeah, so the hardware is basically the AY3-8913 programmable sound generator. That chip uh, produced uh, uh, three voices with an eight-octave range. Uh, it was programmed uh, through a series of uh, 16-8-bit registers. The Some versions of the chip uh, provided for a couple of uh, general I.O. ports that could be used for implementing, say, uh, uh, common use would be for joystick inputs or something like that. But the variation used in the speech sound pack, the 8913, does not have those ports. And so it also has the advantage of being in a 24-pin package as opposed to a 28-pin package. So it's a little bit smaller, a little bit easier to fit on a board. Um, you know, the audio was pretty standard for the day. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, I'm sure the, the SID folks will tell us how much superior the SID is to this, but I'd say this is at least kind of a close second uh, in terms of common uh, chips from the day. Um, we can all just argue about how close later, I guess, but... <laughs> not sure what else to say about it. It's a pretty common sound generator chip. Uh, you know, basically it's a sort of a set it up to play a tone and it'll play that tone. It's sort of a fire and forget uh, and it'll just play that tone forever. So what you want to do, of course, is come back periodically and change the tone to the, whenever the notes are supposed to change. And a normal use of the chip, that's just a matter of updating the registers directly. Um, 
I'll get to it in a minute that you have to do something a little bit different on the uh, speech sound cartridge. There's the sound generator chip, there's the, the SPO256 uh, voice synthesizer chip, uh, neither one of which are directly addressable uh, from the COCO, the way the hardware is designed, looking at the schematic here. So if you look, I think I mentioned in the earlier uh, episode on the Orchestra 90 how common this um, address decoding with a 74LS133 and a 74LS138 is. So here it is right on this schematic as well. They're using exactly those two chips. Um, mix and match the uh, some of the lower address lines uh, to get the exact address that you want. But the main, mainly you're, you're uh, decoding to... Uh, the PIC, which is uh, the microcontroller, um, and then the PIC has, um, I guess, what, four ports on it, four 8-bit ports, that it then uses as a combination of address and data buses and, and signaling to uh, to then interface to the, the sound generator and the voice synthesizer. There's also an attached 2K RAM, uh, an SRAM, uh, that uh, is used for some buffering, and um, oh, and then the, there's the one of the ports is used to interface to the data bus for communicating to the 6809. The audio outputs of the two the chips, the the voice synthesizer and the sound generator, um, they're fed through a series of op amps. Um, all three outputs, all three voices on the sound generator are tied together and then mixed. Uh, as well with the the voice synthesizer output, and then they feed back in through the sound pin on the Coco uh, connector, the Coco cartridge bus uh, cartridge bus connector. That's pretty much all there is to say. The, the, I mean, the schematic is kind of complicated. I mean, it's not that complicated, but there's a lot of stuff on it. But you know, it's basically. Uh, an interface to the microcontroller and then the microcontroller then talks to the rest of the hardware uh, and then like I said there's an audio amplification stage with a, a series of op amps that feeds mixes and feeds back in through the sound uh, uh, pin on the cartridge port yeah so one other interesting thing uh, the the clock is actually um, there's a clock doubling circuit um, that on the on board that uh, takes the normal uh, E clock. Um, well, actually, it's the combination of the E and the Q clock that are used to double, so that the the microcontroller runs at the the what would normally be called the high speed uh, for the 6809, the 1.79 uh, or 1.78 megahertz. The the single speed, the 0.89 megahertz, is actually fed into a a circuit that is used to generate a negative six volts, which is fed <laughs> into the amplification stage, so that you can have uh, negative voltages on the 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 audio output. And so apparently the problem is is then if you actually use the high speed poke on a Coco, it's okay on the internal. It's just everything runs, you know, it, the the sounds all get higher or would just all get higher, except that this little piece that's supposed to generate the negative six volts doesn't actually work, <laughs> and so then you don't get the audio output like you're supposed to. Um, so there's a number of uh, variations, uh, but there's ways to hack the hardware 
that are documented on, on Cocopedia or whatever. So if you want to be able to use your Coco at the 1.78 megahertz and use your sound speech pack, um, A, we'll have it work, and then B, have it not sound funny. <laughs> um, then uh, there's some hardware hacking you'll have to do, uh, and I'll have the links to the, for that in the show notes as well. Okay, well, that's probably enough about the hardware. From a software perspective, what do you have to do to program this thing? So if you get a copy of the manual, which is available, there are PDFs available uh, online. Um, well, of course, I'll, having a nice manual in hand is always my preferred choice. But <laughs> anyway, the manual... Whether or not it's written well probably depends on what you're expecting. It's not a real friendly walkthrough, like, say, the getting started with Color Basic or, or whatever. Uh, it's more like a, almost more like a reference manual. It's got a lot of tables with bit definitions and that sort of thing. Uh, so if you are the kind of person that likes to read off a data sheet or something like that, um, it's closer to that. Uh, it's not quite as detailed as a data sheet uh, or a stack of data sheets in this case. Uh, it's a little more digested from that, but not a whole lot. Uh, there are some good examples in BASIC uh, if you want to read through them. But like I said, a lot of the manual is uh, bit definitions and, and command uh, uh, numbers listed, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so the basic notion is, if you want to program the, the audio generation, whether it's the voice synthesis or the sound generation, you have to go through the pick. And so you basically have to start by um, polling the device to see if the pick is, is ready to listen to you. And then if the pick is ready, then you can send a series of commands you know, to well, basically to fill a buffer and then execute a buffer, or or in some cases you can just, I think you can just write strings out for the this text to to uh, speech to work. Um, even that's probably filling a buffer would be my guess. But basically, there's a if you write a a value with a high bit set, it's considered a command. Of course, you can also write a zeros, which basically is a command too. So. <laughs> <laughs> but other than zero, all the other commands have the bit set. Zero says doesn't stop making any sounds. Uh, there are eight 64-byte buffers defined uh, that you can then use for a combination of things. You can load uh, uh, speech strings. You can load sound description data. You can load allophone addresses. So that's if you're doing a, a direct manipulation of the allophones rather than using a text-to-speech um, so you can then using that you can make the cocoa approximate foreign languages for example or you know Klingon or whatever you want uh, um, anyway so there's um, so string sound data allophone addresses or the uh, sound generator register values so I mentioned before you normally uh, most players that, that hit this kind of sound generator hardware uh, do so by dumping registers at a uh, register writes at a certain rate. Uh, in this case, the registers aren't mapped in directly to the Coco's memory map, but there is a way to to load the register values for the microcontroller to to then dump them out. Um, so it's probably in many cases probably just as good. There are probably some cases where that becomes a problem. I know uh, Simon Jonasson has expressed a lot of frustration over having to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, so if you load if you load regular text, the 
the um, the microcontroller uh, can can convert the text. It has a set of rules for converting text into regular uh, into a set of allophones. Some of it will be better than others, but it's kind of a, an easy way to get some speech out. Um, if you need better control of that, you can actually send specific allophones uh, in the order you want. Like I said, you can do some sound description stuff, which uh, describes in the manual how you describe it. The sound description looks similar to the kinds of things you would write into the registers, but um, they're kind of condensed a little bit. Uh, so you don't... Maybe it makes more sense. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, you might like using that if you need to generate the sounds. And of course, if you just want to generate the sounds using the register settings for the chip, you can do that. Okay, well, that's uh, about all I've got to say about the sound gen or the sound the speech sound cartridge. <laughs> it's a pretty cool uh, set of hardware. Uh, it seemed like it must have been a fairly expensive device to build. It would be my guess with all that extra hardware. Um, probably, it's kind of funny that it ended up costing the same as the Orchestra 90. So Orchestra 90 practically had no hardware at all. <laughs> but you know, it's. Uh, like I say, in some ways, it's the hardware is more similar to what you would have found on, say, the Atari or, or the Commodore, you know, a sound generator, rather than something that needs constant CPU service. Uh, so that's kind of cool. Um, I'm not sure why they bundled the sound generation with the uh, speech synthesis. I remember back in the day, it seemed like speech synthesis was just a really cool thing that people got excited about. Uh, I always was a little turned off by it. You get excited, oh, it's going to talk to me, and then it's, it has that robotic voice that <laughs> everyone associates with computers from the 80s. Um, but I don't know. It excited a lot of people, I guess, back then. So maybe somebody thought it made sense. I've also heard that, uh, and I couldn't find the reference, but I, I remember reading somewhere that, that General Instruments basically made the chipset available in a kind of at a discount price for the entire set um so maybe it was just too attractive a deal to pass up and they just put it all on the one uh, board <laughs> um anyway so one more thing to mention is uh tim lindner uh is a long-term member of the coco community um he uh several years ago i guess took an interest in the sound speech pack or speech sound cartridge uh, he set up a, a page that he maintains with a lot of information about it. It's got references to the manuals, and he's got some descriptions of how the microcontroller works, um, data sheets for all the parts, including the microcontroller, I think. One time, which I don't see it immediately right here. Maybe it's still out there, and I'm just not looking at it. Oh, yeah, there it is. At one time, uh, Tim made an effort to, to disassemble the ROM code for the microcontroller and he actually has uh, both the binary which he managed to extract from the microcontroller and then the disassembled uh, code uh, with uh, says comments as well uh, so if you really want to understand how the microcontroller works uh, you can take a look if you really wanted to understand it or whatever 
I don't know if you could build rebuild that binary for a current pick or not. I would bet that if you understood how the code worked, you could write something pretty similar for an AVR or something like that. So if you wanted to build a clone of of um, the the sound the speech sound cartridge, the information is there. I think it could be done. I don't know if it's uh, worthwhile or if we should all just move on. <laughs> but <laughs> at least if you clone the hardware, there's software out there that already will use it. So that's always a a benefit of cloning something that already existed. Uh, but anyway, I'll put a link in the show notes for Tim's webpage on the speech sound. Uh, package uh, that's about it so i hope you've enjoyed this overview of the tandy speech sound cartridge and if you have any comments or questions please feel free to contact me is john at cocoacrew.org or your feedback at cocoacrew.org let me know what i messed up or uh you know what i'm left out uh, and if you have a testimonial, you want to talk about how great the cartridge is or how uh, <laughs> perfectly it was designed or whatever, I'd be happy to hear that as well. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed it, and uh, we'll move on with the rest of the show. All right, thanks, Coco Forever. Now, if there is any dedicated group of old computer users, it is certainly the people who still love their Coco, the Tandy Color Computer. Welcome back to Episode 11 of the Games Corner. On this episode, I will be reviewing a game called Moon Shuttle. Do I know anything about this game? Not really. Did I play this game back in the day? Never. Why am I reviewing this game, you ask? Well, because it is a Coco Fest memory for me. And what better episode to mention it on? The last one right before the fest. Here's the story. Two years ago at Coco Fest 2014, John Linville, Boise Pete, Jim O'Keefe, and myself finished dinner early and decided to head back to the conference center. We were the only ones there as everyone else was at a different restaurant and still having dinner. Jim wanted us to test some Cocos he had in his collection. On a side note, speaking of Jim, he is one super cool guy. He attended the first Coco Fest I did back in 2010. He drives a few retro caddies. One of them has the front passenger seat removed and is always filled with Coco goodness from disc controllers to program reference manuals. I will never forget the first time he offered a ride and I sat in the back seat sandwiched between Coco hardware wall to wall. He can also sing and recently won an award on local television. But seriously, anyone who drives these awesome retro caddies with Coco hardware in them definitely must be cool. Okay, on with the story. So we were going through each of Jim's Cocos to make sure they fire up. Boise was a pro at getting the ones working that did not boot up right away. Then all of a sudden, John notices a cassette game in Jim's Coco stash called Moon Shuttle. So for the heck of it, we actually hooked up a tape drive and loaded up the game. Well, wouldn't you know it? This game only requiring 16k of memory was actually fun. A game I had never played or seen before. It must have snuck by me back in the day. I remember after playing the game, John begged Jim to have it in his collection. A smart move if you ask me. Definitely a gem to own in a collection. It was even complete with the manual and packaging. Well, if you enjoyed this story, this should give you another reason to make it out to Coco Fest. This kind of thing happens there all the time. You can meet new people, make new friends, and best of all, we all have the same thing in common. The Coco. It is this 30-plus year old computer that is bringing all of us together. Well, I suppose I should actually do a real review of the game Moon Shuttle, as I know all of you are probably real curious. Moon Shuttle is programmed by two guys named Jerry Humphrey and James Garron. It was released in 1983 and published by Datasoft. It requires a whopping 16K of memory and is fully compatible with all three of the Cocos. Moon Shuttle is a shooter arcade style game. You play on two different screens. The first screen you fly through an asteroid belt which has rows of asteroids flying by in different directions and speeds. 
You shoot them and also accelerate or deaccelerate your ship. The second screen, you must shoot a certain number of enemy spaceships which can dodge and shoot back at you. As you go through this level again and again, you get different enemy spaceships to combat, which get smarter and harder to kill the higher levels you get in the game. This game really is good. It runs at a great clip and amazed me at how detailed it was for a game requiring such a low amount of memory. A great excuse, if you ask me, to use your old Coca 1 or 2 that has not been upgraded to 64K yet. This game definitely deserves some love. If you're interested in trying it out, it can be downloaded from the Color Computer Archives website. I will make sure to add the link in the show notes. Thank you all for listening. Long live the Coco, and game on. After these messages... We'll be right back! Well, wouldn't you know it, it's that time again. We have reached the end of episode 11. And you know what that means, don't you? It's time to pack up and get ready for Coco Fest. Seriously, crunch time now. I must go hit the soldering iron and finish up the Sega Joypad adapters that I'm getting ready for the fest. I'd like to thank our host John Linville for providing yet another excellent tech segment, this time on the Speech Sound Pack. I think he sounded the smoothest on this one, don't you agree? Very laid back and relaxed sounding. We'd also like to thank all of you for listening and sending in your feedback. Hope to see you all at Coco Fest. We can blow the doors off the place. Stay tuned for episode 12, the full report on Coco Fest. Until next month, happy cocoaing and Coco Forever. <laughs>